This came from one of our members in Circle, and they were they asked a question about. Can you guys talk a little bit about what America would look like if the left won or if the right won, et cetera? We said, you know what? That sounds like a great episode. We should probably make it a two-part series. And so today we're going to go through what would it look like if the left won. Now, don't worry. We're going to explain what we mean by the left. We're not going to try to just caricature the left. We're going to try to explain what it is that we actually mean. We're going to go over the issues on like, what would it be like to start a business? What would our foreign policy look like? What would it be to visit the hospital? What would your education look like? What would all of that look like in America if the left one. All right. That's what we're going to talk about today. I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. With me as always, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everybody. Then we have our political prognosticator and resident historian. Doomed. No. That's my that's Christ, my take for Christian today's episode. Of doom. Christian, Christian of, of doom. doom. Christian of Doom. And then, of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I'm not sure I earned my title today with the audio issues, but we're here and we're <laughs> off on, off to the races. All right. So first thing, first thing we want to do. All right. So when we talk about the left, what do we mean? Now, obviously, there's a lot of people that would fall on the spectrum of the left. Right. Left of center. Um, there's there's a lot of people. I think Elon Musk considers himself more left of center, although that's well, been changing did. over time. The Overton window shifted quite a bit. But here's what we don't. We're, we're not going to sit here and, and discuss like the most moderate of the left and, and what would happen if they won, because quite frankly, I don't think they're really running things in the Democratic Party. So we're, we're going to talk about what would happen if, if the more, um, let's say, aggressive, progressive, extreme. Extre not even extreme. I don't, I don't think it's even extreme anymore. I'm not talking about just like what AOC would have. Um, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, yeah. I do not think Elizabeth Warren is on the far left spectrum here, right? But we're going to look. Anymore. Boy, if you would have asked yeah. us, if you would have asked us that 10 years ago, maybe, we would have been like, she's so far to the left da, da, da. but now she's almost like a left moderate she's still that's how far left the <sighs> left has gone we, we we are gonna we are gonna talk about again so i i'm we're not gonna make this out like full full-blown squad but we're gonna go more toward that that element because let's face it the, the modern democratic party is pushing for a lot of policies that I think the Democratic Party just 10 or 15 years ago would have never dreamed of. So clearly that's the direction it's going, is the more left-wing progressive version of themselves. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. And um, let's, go ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and start off with a, a video here. This is just for fun for those of you. And I said right off the bat, we're not going to caricature. And, now here and we then are. we immediately caricature. Gonna, <laughs> but we're, we have, we're, we're getting this out of the way because we, we need to start with a laugh. We're getting this out of the way because we just, we have to. I feel like it's necessary. So this is uh, part of the National Convention for the um, Democratic Socialists of America. Right. So the Democratic Socialists of America had a convention in, uh, I think it was Atlanta, Georgia in 2019. So keep in mind, it's 2023 now. This is the sort of thing that was going on at their convention back in 2019. And it's part of the reason why, when I say that we're going to assess a left-wing victory and what that looks like, I mean, you're telling me that this, they, they were doing it back in 2019, guys. All right. So let's go ahead and uh, let's B, go to play this video. That's BC. Yeah. Before COVID. That's before COVID. All right. Let's go ahead and can we hit play on this one? Mm -hmm. All right. Right, right uh, quick point of privilege. Quick point um, of personal privilege. Yes. Um, guys, uh, first of all, James Jackson, Sacramento, he, him. I... Just want to say, can we please keep the chatter to a minimum? I'm one of the people who's very, very prone to sensory overload. There's a lot of whispering and chatter going on. It's making it very difficult for me to focus. Please, can we just, I know it's, we're all fresh and ready to go, but can we please just keep the chatter to a minimum? It's affecting my ability to focus. Thank you. Those of you thank not, you, those, <laughs> yeah, thank you, comrade. Those of you 
Oh, it gets those better. Of, those of you who can't see the video, people are like waving their hands like like this in agreement that yes, we need to keep the chatter down. But yeah, the thank you, comrade. All right, let's go ahead and so oh, first things better. first. First things first, guys. Keep you know, if you're gonna have your meeting in the vanguard of the proletariat, right? We we got to get to that. We got to get to the sections where we're gonna start talking about seizing the means of production and eating the rich, right? But before that, we're gonna need the chatter down, guys. I'm from Sacramento, he him. Because because see, this is why I could never be uh, a, a socialist because I just can't shut the hell up. <laughs> okay, so okay. I, but does anybody? <laughs> I want to know. Does anybody know what his fatal mistake was in getting up and saying that? You're about to find out. All right, let's go. No, that, you're thinking of a different one, I think. Oh, go really? Ahead. All right, go to Ant Play. Okay, is there a speaker against name, point chapter, pronoun? Privilege. Point of personal privilege. Yes. Please do not use gendered language to, to address everyone. He said guys. Okay. <laughs> point of privilege once again. That's right. Point of privilege once again. Hi, James Jackson, Sacramento DSA, he, him. I have already asked people to be mindful of the chatter of their comrades who are sensitive to sensory overload, and that goes double for the heckling and the hissing. It is also triggering to my anxiety. Like, the be comradely doesn't ju isn't just for like, you know, let's keep things civil or whatever. It's so that people aren't gonna get triggered and so that it doesn't affect their performance as a delegate, okay? Your need to express yourself is important, but your need to express yourself should not trump or over like, I see that no Buzz. one's clapping for me. Buzz, it, I, I think it's going to be, he, wow. as soon as he said, it should not trump, I, I mean, or, it, like. <laughs> Guys, don't use gendered pronouns. <laughs> Did you, like, that guy was, like, manifesting a demon as he was talking, it sounded like. He was pretty upset. He was pretty <laughs> upset. All right, here we have the chief of security. Let's see what the chief of security for the convention has to say could be because I'm not engaging, but it also is because everyone's doing this. And that's really important because those loud bursts of noise, even though this is a noisy space, when we can do something like reducing that, that's really important. So please don't clap, shoot up these. We have a lot of disabled comrades and uh, a lot of those are invisible disabilities. You don't know who it is uh, that is having a more difficult time navigating this space. And this space was not created with all of their needs in mind. So it's up to us to modify that space to make sure that uh, everybody is able to move in the ways that they need to move. Um, and, and additionally with the, um, the noise issue, like avoid hissing, avoid waving banners, right? Um, because those, there's, there's all sorts of things. If you don't know what to do, Pause. Oh my gosh. The socialists are saying avoid wow. waving banners. Like this doesn't. Yeah. Not true socialists. No you, true can Scotsman. You, can um, you see these guys? Can you see these guys at the military parades like in Moscow where it's like, oh, can you guys keep the, the chatter to a man? The jackaboots <laughs> of the CCP would just stamp all over these people. <laughs> like, I mean, think about I actually. Are, are we going to play through the rest of this? Because I, I, I've got something I want to bring up, but I, yeah, I don't want to bring it up We've only got a couple more minutes. We've only got a couple more minutes. We're done. Yeah. So now they do this. They do jazz yeah, hands. They do jazz hands. They don't hands. do the. Yeah, no, no, not the not the snapping, the <laughs> jazz hands, because there's invisible stuff that scares them. All right, go ahead and play. Show up these, right? I'm sure there's lots of ways that we can communicate to each other without needing to rely on something uh, that's going to hurt somebody else. Like sound. We have quiet rooms that are available. There's a range of options of these, right? Please don't go in that space with anything that's like an aggressive scent, for instance. <laughs> an <right>? aggressive <laughs> scent? <laughs> Don't That's be going my natural the, musk. My natural musk. <laughs> could you take your name? Could you take that testosterone out of the room? That's crazy. No aggressive sense, people. I, at least now we know. This guy came in here with his pheromones. Now, 
now we know. Now we know if they ever uh, if they ever try to okay, business owners, property owners, if these guys ever show up to quote seize the means of production, couple up, couple extra splashes of Old Spice and a little bit of this, <laughs> right? And they're done, man. <laughs> they're done. They're done. Oh, All right, go gosh. ahead. Let's let's go. <laughs> don't want to put people in stressful situations that they don't consent to, right? And we there are. Um, right-wing infiltrators who are trying to get in here, but it's going to be really traumatic for people if we're not making an affirmative effort to de-escalate each other and de-escalate ourselves, right? Take a deep breath. <laughs> and feel better before you say anything. Don't really talk to anybody who doesn't have a creden credential, especially if you claim to Pause. be in the press. You have <laughs> no idea who that is. <laughs> Essentially what Comrade is saying is... Uh Speak to no one unless they've been properly vetted by security forces here at the convention. That's <laughs> the if they if they why don't why don't he why doesn't he just say what he wants to say, which is papers, please. <laughs> I I think it would sound better if you uh, did more of a German style. Actually. No, no, it this is, fit. This is it wouldn't fit. We're going we're going more socialist, less uh, fascist on this one. Are, are are we through this or is no? There... There's a little bit more. Calm okay. down, Christian. You're gonna get a chance. All right, go ahead. <laughs> that person is. Please do not talk to anybody who identifies themselves as a member of the press without having uh, credentials. Um, don't talk to cops. Don't talk to MAGA assholes. All, we're almost there. Just uh, this, but thank you. Um, we are going to be visited tomorrow um, by some MAGA protesters. Um, is there anybody here who's done abortion clinic escort work? By all means, don't talk to cops if there are cops there for any reason at all, right? Um, and if you do see someone talking to cops, uh, let the marshals know. Um, let the marshals know. <laughs> all right, we can we can stop there. Okay, so because I don't want to trigger Christian. As as <laughs> I, I, do you have I, a point of personal privilege? Oh, I'm sorry. Did, oh, I, I didn't introduce myself. Christian's Christian Hines, Culpepper, Virginia. He him. Okay. Um, <laughs> Christian of Doom. <laughs> um, okay, so. Like, we laugh at this, and, you know, like, I love how we started this episode with, you know, we're not going to caricature the left, and we play okay, we kind of themselves. I will yeah. say, I will say this. We're just showing them. This <laughs> would have been considered extreme five years ago. Yeah. It's not super extreme. It's no. definitely left wing. Absolutely, right? But, like, it, it's more acceptable, especially in online spaces. This type of behavior is is totally more prevalent on the internet. In a broad way, I don't just mean in a in a clickish only left wing groups like th this type of stuff is normal on the internet, and eventually it'll become normal in real life. Unfortunately, because we've talked about before in this podcast how the Leviathan only swims left; it does not swim right. And that actually gets me to my point that like the reason that they're acting like this is because they have to reaffirm all the individual identity groups that make up the left's coalition. Now, the left is built around. A constructing a coalition of the oppressed or at least those that they claim are yeah. oppressed and so people that have social anxiety people that that you know don't like gender you know, fluidity yeah people, yeah people that don't like gendered language people that that, that 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 you know freak out in any sort of you know like public setting um like all of those type of people Every single one of these people came up and, and they they basically listed their gender identity, listed what mental illness they had, listed what social anxiety they had. You know, oh, we have all these disabled people, many of which are invisible disabled, which means that they're not actually physically disabled. They just they like the labels. 
these are people that like labels and they like labels because it helps them identify who's oppressed and who's an oppressor. And they all want to claim oppressed status because lo and behold, they're all socialists, right? They're all, they're all following the Marxist playbook. And we've talked about before that the Marxist playbook in America is not going to be the peasants in the field, the proletariat seizing the means. That's just not what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. We live in a capitalist society where everybody's relatively rich. Even the poor people are rich. And so you're going to have this type of stuff become normalized. It's already becoming normalized. Well, and that's what I think is important about showing this is as much as, again, (laughs) we're, we're trying to go on an honest representation here, but this was, this was, uh, you know, almost five years ago. I'm not quite a little, little bit less than that, but, and, and when it came out then everyone was like, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. Okay. Now, now go watch people testify before Congress or testify before committees. Now go watch, the, the various debates that are happening in state houses. Go look like, at the Twitter accounts of certain groups. Oh, yeah. And, and politicians. Go, go look at Nina Turner. Go look at Elizabeth Warren. Go look at it, stuff that the, the Biden, the Biden White House had, you know, trans activists that were stripping down, you know, at the White House as they flew yeah. the trans flag. Like the, this, yeah. like, this is the yeah. part where I say. Can you imagine in any other administration, somebody ripping their shirt off in the middle of, you know, the White House sitting there just shaking them, just. Yeah out there. And I mean, earlier on, Joe Biden's like giving him a nice big hug. And I mean, I guess he's kind of always trying to cop a feel. So he's probably fine with it. But to Nick's point, like it, yes, this is an extreme caricature, of course. But the point is, is that it won't be forever. Um, This is the direction that the left is going. And Sometimes they're they're speeding towards that direction. Sometimes they're only walking towards that direction. Well, but they're moving in that direction. To get to give you an idea, I, I watched as a member of the House of Delegates who was a, a very gifted lawyer, um, you know, very very committed father, and and someone that I I would have described as being you know a, a reasonable guy. I sat there and watched. Democrat. As, Yes. Democrat delegate. Okay. I, yeah. I, I sat there and watched. And, and I remember when he first came in, the Republicans were still in control of the, the House uh, and I think the Senate as well. We didn't have the governorship. Um, but we used to sit down and talk about things and whatnot. And, and then I remembered sitting in, in a committee and, and watching this same person trash a witness who, who essentially was upset that she had to undress in front of a fully intact male. In, in the women's locker room. Right. She was a bigot for that. Yeah. She, she was, a, she just wanted to pick on people that were different than her. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like, dude, I know you well enough to know that if, if some, if a boy tried to do this in front of your daughter in the school locker room, you'd be furious, but no, it, it didn't, it didn't matter because the, the overall narrative that was, that, that predominates within the left and therefore within the democratic party requires that you pay homage. And and I think that for some of them, they think like, oh, this, it's not that big a deal or it's over here on the fringes or whatnot. Well, it's not. It's becoming more, it's already become mainstream within democratic circles. I, I mean, I, again, I can't find a single one to come out, a single elected Democrat to come out and say, hey, yeah, I think kids showing up at, at drag shows that are very, very obviously burlesque is a bad idea. I, I can't find one. So when we show this, even though you could look at it and be like, it's a caricature, you're just making fun, you're just, I, I think we do have to acknowledge that the Overton window has shifted a, uh, shifted a lot harder to the left than it has to the right. So as we go through these, these issues, and we're going to go through economics, taxes, education, military, immigration, healthcare, energy policies, we go through all of these, we're going to talk about like, okay, 
the Elizabeth Warren, to some degree AOC, um, you know, Joe Biden even. We're gonna what does it look like if they not only had complete control of Congress, right, but but they they actually had a significant they had, they had enough people within the population to essentially get away with what they want. Let's say the Constitution was no longer really standing in their way. They'd been able to amend it the way that they wanted. So, so what would this look like? And the first question we're going to talk about is economics. And specifically, what we're going to talk about here is what does this mean for things like, um, you know, working, owning a business, owning property? What, what exactly does that look like in a world where people like Elizabeth Warren or, or Nina Turner or uh, AOC, you know, maybe not some members, but we'll, we'll, we'll say AOC, she's pretty influential. What does it look like if they're in charge? And, and I would say right off the bat, I, I think you have to acknowledge that they would nationalize significant industries within the economy. Like I, I could definitely see them nationalizing, like, would we have more like, for, for we have like PBS, we have the public broadcasting system. Would you see massive amount of funds going into more, uh, let's say state supported? They never say state run, right? But state supported media. Would you see state supported or state run industries? I absolutely think you would. I, I, I think you would. Maybe not immediately, but shortly over time, would you start to see greater consolidation within industries? So like, for instance, you have like a GM that goes out of business because they've managed their contracts horribly. Um, and now they need a massive government bailout. Okay. Well, when Obama was in office, a massive government bailout was meaning we stole a bunch of money for the taxpayers and we gave it to GM. All right. Now in, in a future world where it's more of like the Elizabeth Warren AOC, Bernie Sanders branch of the party, General Motors is now government motors. And so, yeah, they'll bail it out, but they're going to take over or they're going to have such control over the means of production within that industry that they're going to determine things like what your board looks like. They're going to determine things like what your workforce looks like. You are going to be required to be unionized. Um, they're probably going to have price caps on what you can charge for certain things. So when I look at the economic, if you want to own a business, you're going to have a laundry list. I mean, there's already so a laundry like it, list of it would be It would be an extreme version of what's happening now with these banks, uh, the banks not um, uh, loaning the people who have too low of an, is it ESG score? Mm -hmm. And so it would be that, but like. I actually, I think that's a great way to put it. Like right, right now, the ESG piece and some of the DEI piece is largely being pushed by institutions like BlackRock or Bank of America or things like that. I think you would see it become official government policy to where your business in order to legally operate would have to have a certain ESG score. Mm -hmm. you, you would have to have, and in order to get that ESG score, you would have to set up certain DEI policies. And if you think people won't comply, you're wrong. Yeah. They will comply. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can even look at just as simple as Chick-fil-A is already, they are complying with, uh, I mean, in the best way they possibly can or in the most, uh, I, I, however you would say that, um, well, yeah, they, they're, they're trying not to be super overt, but we can all see it because of what they're, they're putting I, I out also, there. I also think you would see probably a government takeover of, of a significant portion of the inner, or I mean, we'll go into energy later, but I think you would see like right now we have, you know, Dominion or we have PG and E or we have things like that, which are like these public private partnerships. I think they just become public. I think when it comes to uh, oil companies or uh, natural gas companies and things like that, I think there would be a major push to either run them or regulate them so much that there would almost be no difference between the government running them and uh, the, the private 
ownership would just be a, a facade, basically. What, what I'm trying to say is I don't think they would do... I think even if AOC had her total way, I don't think they would totally seize the means of production. I think you, they would nationalize certain major industries. And then I think they would run a more, I know this word has triggers, but they would run a more fascist style economy. And I, and I don't mean fascist as Nazi. I mean, fascist as the model that was originally set up by the fascist manifesto where it was, um, you know, you, you had to have certain union representation, you basically industry, private industry to the extent that it was allowed to exist, had to operate in a very, very specific cartels where they had like regional and geographical areas that they were responsible for. They had to meet certain government quotas with respect to their workforce, their production requirements, their prices, things like that. Um, I think you would see a lot more government intervention into pricing um, and things like housing. Housing would be a big one. Um, I, I think that the government would, would, take over more and more uh, what you would call maybe like low income housing and they would, they would run and operate it or attempt to. Um, I, I think trying to, again, I think trying to start or run a business would be an absolute bureaucratic nightmare, absolute nightmare because they would attempt to enforce a lot of these things at the, that's the other thing that I think would be significant that you need to, that we're going to need to um, differentiate between the way the left would run the country versus the way the right would run the country. I think the left would attempt to nationalize as many decisions as possible. Um, I think you would see, so, so when it came, comes to running the economy, the, the number of things that you deal with now at a local or state level, I think there'd be far more federal intervention into what that actually looked like. I would say just, just look at New York state as kind of a model for, for the left's economic policies, right? So New York state has like one of the highest income taxes in the world. It has a tremendous amount of government regulation. I know we're going to get into taxes in this episode, but it has a tremendous amount of government regulation. It's exceptionally difficult to start a business in New York. I, there's actually a guy that I follow on um, YouTube. He, he makes some really good videos. Are you talking about New York in general or New York city? Both. Okay. Um, there, there, there's this guy named Lewis Rossman, um, who had a um, repair service, like he would repair computers and phones and stuff like that. And he, he had grown it a lot over the like 10 years that he ran it. He has a YouTube channel um, where he talks about this type of stuff. And he, um, he ended up moving about a year ago from New York City to Texas. And it was so funny. He like explained like, like the stuff that he went through is just ridiculous. Like when he moved, he, the state of New York still wanted to tax him even after he opened up a new business in Texas. That's right. They tried to follow him. Yeah. And, um, he, he had this huge series on, on, on YouTube walking his audience through like just the bureaucratic nightmare he had to get through. And he was basically like, at one point he was like, New York, New York City and New York State are like literally at war with free enterprise. They do not want you to start a business. And if you start one, if you make the mistake of starting one, they will follow you to the ends of the earth until they bankrupt you. Um, like he literally started a new business. He shut down his old one, moved to another state, and then started a new one. And I guess the mistake he had was that it had the same name. Or the mistake that he had was is that he... Uh, he, he maybe, you know, didn't go through like gender reassignment surgery or something like that and become a new person because he <laughs> should have taken a new name when he moved to, new, uh, to, to Texas. But like the point is, is that I bring this up because he's just one guy, but his story would have gone completely unnoticed if he had never created a YouTube channel. Yeah. And for every Lewis Rossman out there, there's thousands of people like him that want to start a business or want to engage in the economy. And they live in states like New York or California or Illinois, and they, they just can't. 
Kevin O'Leary, who's not a great person and uh, was engaged in the FTX stuff. So take everything he has to say with a grain of salt. But there was one thing that he said that was right. He came out a couple months ago and um, O'Leary said, you know, my whole life, I would put my money as, as a big time investor in Silicon Valley and in the Boston area, because he, I believe he grew up in Massachusetts. Those were his two places that he had all of his business connections that he, that he invested all of his money in for, for decades. And, and he ended up saying something fun, like just incredible when he was like, I can't put money into the place that I grew up and, and built, you know, cultivated business relations relationships with, because Massachusetts is at war with free enterprise. You cannot invest. These states are, he, he, he called them, he, he said these states are literally uninvestable. Well, and what was interesting, he said that, and one of the, he said that about New York as well. He said, get your money out of New York. Uh, it's, it's uninvestable. And one of the news anchors said, well, Governor Hochul would disagree with that. Like, I don't care if she would disagree with that. Is she the one running the businesses? No, she's the one pushing the sort of regulatory and tax policy that's driving the businesses out. But it's amazing that they think that's a one-for-one -one exchange. Hey, we've got a bunch of entrepreneurs that are voluntarily leaving. We've got a bunch of taxpayers that are voluntarily leaving. The reason that they give is that it's really, really hard to, to do business in your state. Well, not according to the governor. I, oh, I don't care. I remember when that was happening. We lived in Washington State years and years ago. And during that time, Boeing was actually threatening to leave Washington State because of all of their, it was like regulations, the union stuff and the various striking that was going on and everything else. And they had gotten a deal to leave Washington. And I don't remember who it was, but they sued him to try to force him to stay. Yeah. Well, there's there's two things I want to talk about here very quickly for anybody that thinks that this is hyperbolic that us saying that the government would come in and either nationalize certain industries or you know significantly um cartelize them and by cart by cartelize we mean cartels set and people think of cartels as drug cartels that's not necessarily what it means it just means basically groups within a particular industry or or, or group of businesses that are required to operate within certain guidelines governing the cartel but just just to give you an idea a lot of this has actually happened in America before. Now, the problem is, is the way that you're taught about it within your high school, it is pretty much comes from a particular narrative of um, individuals that were essentially FDR apologists, right? They, they love FDR and the, and the running narrative in most high school textbooks around World War II and around the Great Depression is FDR saved us from, you know, the, the rigors of, of laissez-faire capitalism. Just fundamentally untrue, fundamentally untrue. But let me tell you about some of the things that he did, which, oh, by the way, didn't cause the economy to recover. Even people that are fans of FDR that still think he needed to do it still come back now and, and acknowledge that, yeah, these didn't achieve the, the economic um, results that they thought they would. Um, FDR signed the National Industrial Recovery Act, and that was considered the flagship of the New Deal. He signed it in June of 1933. This was kind of like the climax of his 100 days of, of like legislative action when he took office. All right. But what people don't understand about what that did is that, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to read here from an article from Cato. It goes, the members probably didn't have time to read the bills either before the voting began. Possibly the 100 days began the American tradition of having members of Congress vote on bills they hadn't read. In any case, the National Industrial Recovery Act authorized the president to establish cartels via executive orders. He established some 500 cartels, and one of the things they did was fix prices above market levels. There's a famous case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. There was a couple. Um, 
one of them was they, they called it the chicken case because there was a rule under the National Recovery Act that when you went in to go buy your chickens, you couldn't pick your chickens. Well, this one, this one small business was allowing people to do that. And they're like, well, I, this is just how I do business. And that was considered a violation of the National Recovery Act. There was another business that offered dry cleaning. And the reason why they were hauled into court by FDR's government was because they were charging too little. They were charging too little for dry cleaning during the Great Depression. And it was funny because it was an immigrant, it was an immigrant family, and you know they were they're getting cross examined like, oh, are you an expert in economics? Show us where your degrees are in ec- economics. He goes, well, I'm not an economist, but I'm an economizer. I, I know what my I know what my customers want. I know what it takes for my business to stay alive. But they were being ridiculed and mocked because, after all, they weren't experts in quote macroeconomics. Well. What most people will not tell you about the Great Depression, what most of your high school textbooks will tell you, is that despite all of these, first of all, they, many of them were uh, rendered or ruled unconstitutional eventually, uh, but they did not help with overall economic recovery. In fact, there was something else called the Agricultural Adjustment Act, right, which was considered another triumph of the, of the 100 days. What it did, so again, this is the 1930s, early 1930s, people are hungry in America, so what was the federal government's solution under the Agricultural Adjustment Act, all right? It was, ra- it was passed to raise prices of agricultural commodities above market levels in an effort to raise farm incomes. So just so you understand, at a time in this country when people were legitimately going hungry, the federal government was setting up cartels to increase the price of agricultural products at the same time that they were paying inspectors to go around right? And ensure that farmers were not growing additional crops. So they were paying farmers not to farm. Well, what would the farmers do? They'd take the subsidy and then they'd farm anyways, because people are hungry and there's a market for these products. So the government would do two things. One, they would pay you not to farm. Two, they would buy your excess produce, right? Your excess produce, your excess livestock. Oh, so they took the excess produce and the excess livestock and they, and they gave it to hungry people. Nope, they destroyed it. They destroyed it. That way you could keep market prices high because their theory was that if those prices were high, it would be good for the farmers. And if it was good for agriculture, since we had a, a large agricultural sector in the United States, that would be good for the economy, right? These were the sort of decisions that were being made by people that are, uh, we're now telling school children, oh gosh, yeah, this really saved us from laissez-faire capitalism. Well, first of all, go look at Herbert Hoover. He was not a laissez-faire capitalist. He was the most interventionist president in the United States economy, other than Woodrow Wilson during World War One. He was the most interventionist peacetime president in the U.S. economy until FDR. Right. So, for anybody that wants to tell me that, well, this this is Nick, you're being you're being ridiculous. He set up 500 cartels by executive order. All right. Now, do we want to talk at all about like? macroeconomics here well i, I want to talk macroeconomics is just essentially the the i the i i mean i, mean, I feel like we kind of i feel like we kind of need to bring up like if you want to if you want to the the fiscal trajectory of this country well uh, well listen to to stay on point with the economics the point that i'm just trying to make right here right is the idea that and when we say we think if AOC and, and Elizabeth Warren and all those guys were in charge and Bernie Sanders, if those guys were in charge, it would lead to greater cartelization. It would lead to greater government control of the economy. It would lead to greater price fixing. It's not the first time it happened in the United States. All it required was a massive economic crisis. And I think that's your point. Well, 
No, I, I think that the massive, massive economic crisis is going to come from the left winning, not from not, not, not being the catalyst that, that triggers the left's win. I, I think the left has already won. Like, like we, we have we have an inner party and an outer party here, and the left is the inner party, right? right. The, the, the Democrats, which are the, the vehicle for the left to, to, to make action, they're the ones that actually have the power and the control. The, the, the Republican Party increasingly is just this neutered, controlled opposition that provides token, you know, pushback, but doesn't actually ever achieve anything. And so I, 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 th I think that, yes, on paper, yeah, we have elections, we have we have pushback and stuff like that. But but think about all the huge conservative victories in the past. I've brought this up before. Like, is America more to the left or right today than it was the year before the last four major right wing victories? Reagan's election oh, no, in nineteen eighty, nineteen ninety four, two thousand ten, and twenty sixteen. Right? It's to the left of of the previous year before every single one of those four elections. And so I, I think that. What we're talking about in today's podcast in some ways is, from my standpoint, more of a prediction of the future rather than a hypothetical scenario. Now, when I say prediction of the future, I don't mean the left wins everything and AOC does literally take over everything. But I mean left-wing ideas on things like economics and culture and domestic policy and foreign policy have seeped into everything and to the point that even so-called conservatives parrot so many when was the last major republican politician to come out against social security mm -hmm. which is explicitly a left-wing policy that is by design operating like a ponzi scheme that is completely insolvent not even metaphorically insolvent will literally be insolvent within like 20 years or so and and so like that's why i say bring up like these macro forces because here's the thing the left has won the political war. They've won the culture war. But you know what? They can't change reality. And reality eventually is going to come crashing in and, and, and shatter their narrative. And as, as they win more and more and more, we're just going to accelerate our rendezvous with destiny, so to speak. Well, and that, and that kind of leads, leads me to the second point here that I want to talk about. So with, with, to wrap up economics, I think what will happen is that they will nationalize certain industries that they consider essential to national security. I think a lot of that will be centered around energy, transportation. Um, I think they will. Red lines. I, I, I think they'll, I think they'll move a lot more toward cartelization of major industries. So you, you'll have, you'll have industries that they, they mark as strategic. And, and you actually saw this with uh, what's her name from California. She was talking to, I think it was like Exxon Mobil and a couple others. And she, she came right out and said it was Maxine Waters. She came right out and said, I, I would nationalize you. Well, what nationalize means is you, you no longer have Exxon. You no longer, you have government oil. Like that's what it is. The government runs the oil industry. I could definitely see them running oil, natural gas, like all, all of those things. They would, I, I think they would first attempt to cartelize it. Um, and then they would just take it over. And, and that's, that's kind of a natural progression for a lot of things is that they, they put on so many rules and regulations that it becomes very, very difficult to innovate or adjust to the market. And then when prices fluctuate, they use it as an excuse for a government takeover, right? Because the only reason prices could fluctuate is because of mean, evil, greedy capitalists. And so what's necessary is for the government to come in and run it and then just make it more efficient. That'll be the argument. Do you think that there would be heavy regulation against, or basically to curtail 
um, certain industries that they're against, yes. certain, like the meat industry, do you think maybe they will start subsidizing, you know, Bill Gates, uh, fake meat yeah. and, and start really, really tamping down and making everything really difficult for slaughterhouses? I, and- I think the narrative that you would see across the board when it came to economic policy, like when we're talking about the marketplace, they would they would start to make categories for things. There would be like strategic businesses. There would be major industries. Then there would be, you know, like uh, small business and whatnot. They would probably leave a lot of the small business alone. In fact, they might even throw out some goodies and subsidization for it and whatnot to try to look like they were business friendly um, and, and the friends of the little guy. Um, however, across the board, they would pass labor laws in such a way to where the unions would get essentially whatever they wanted. That would drastically increase the cost of, of labor, um, which, would, which would fuel a market response to automate more. Now, in those industries where they could get away with it, they would nationalize. Again, that's, I think, your strategic level ones. They would, they would get away with that. With your major industry between labor laws, regulations, especially like you just said, the industries that they don't like very much. They would subs- they would regulate the crap out of industries that they don't like, and then they would subsidize the ones that they do like because they do that now. Um, and then what they would do over time is they they would push it to such a degree to where they made it um, so difficult and so expensive to run these industries that they went out of business or, or they were at such an economic disadvantage. Now, keep in mind, as that's happening, your access to goods and services decreases both in quality, and they, it decreases in quality, and your price goes up. Uh, because they're taking your tax dollars and then they're giving it back to you in order to subsidize, or they're giving portions of it back to you, but through the form of subsidies to particular industries that they favor over other ones. And then every time it leads to problems, their automatic statement is going to be, it's because of the greedy private sector and that's why we need more government control. And so that's why you would you would see the list of businesses that were allowed to operate independently from the government would decrease significantly and especially over time. That's what the economic world looks like, I think, if they're in charge. Now, the next question we ask is taxes. What do taxes look like if they're in charge? That's where the doom loop comes in, right? Because in order to find we, um, some of my favorite episodes we've talked about are. The, the economic ones or the ones related to fiscal or monetary policy. And one thing that we've brought up before in our episode on why the dollar is doomed is that we live in a, we live in a society. <laughs> we, we, we live in a society where um, everything that you think of is funded by debt right now. The entire economy is losing money to the tune of trillions of dollars a year, and it's only funded through an ever-increasing expansion of private and public debt at the federal, state, and local level, and also at the institutional level with, with you know, pri- privately owned um, or publicly traded corporations. And that entire debt system will eventually require an outlet, right? The, the, the money will, will have to be paid. Yeah. And, you know, for example, the way that it works at the federal level is the federal government issues treasury bonds to then give money to Congress to pay for goodies. Well, assuming a scenario where the left doesn't matter to what degree the left has more control over the federal government, you're going to see an increase in federal expenditures for everything. There's always there's always a demand for more money. Nick knows this in person from his time in Richmond. And by the way, doesn't matter if it's even Democrats in control. I would argue in terms of oh, economics, the left includes Republicans too. They Republicans love spending love money spending just money as too. much as just on different things. And the left, Democrats like spending even more money, but yeah. 
Um, point Cut, is, cutting is that, spending gets no one reelected. Yes, cutting cutting spending is a great way to shorten your political career. Um, it, it, our democratic system rewards politicians who can hand out more money to more voters to buy more votes, yeah. and so therefore, imagine a scenario. We're already in that scenario, right? Look at where the U.S. debt was when I was born, and thirty almost thirty years ago in 1994, the federal debt was between four and five trillion dollars. And look at where it is now. Yeah. It's at what, 32, 31 yeah, trillion? Like and so what does that tell us? That means that the federal government for the last 30 years has perpetually run, with one brief exception of the late 90s, massive and ever-increasing budget deficits on spending on, on everything you can think of, right? Those deficits are, are paid for through treasury bonds. But what happens when in order to pay off pre-existing debt, you, it's not like you're having any more money coming in, so you need you need to to sell treasury bonds to pay off the debt that you took out 20 years ago mm-hmm. and the debt you took out 10 years ago and, and five you can't, years ago. And you can't get away with printing it right now because... Well, hang on. I'm going to get to that because the... Basically, what I'm saying is, is that you, 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 eventually you're going to create a doom loop, an economic doom loop. You're going to have to take out debt in order to pay off old debt. But in doing so, you're going to increase your debt load, which will thus necessitate more debt. Add in more debt with more spending. This is a doom loop. What I'm saying is this is a doom loop even if you don't increase spending. We're doomed even if we flatline federal spending. Now imagine a scenario where we increase federal spending. Yeah. Joe Biden's last budget was like over a $6 trillion budget. So in short order, you're going to get a scenario where the amount of, of treasury bonds that, that the Treasury Department can issue are, are not going to necessarily cover the, the debt obligations of the federal government. So how do you fix this problem? You either offer higher interest rates to get more buyers, which will just accelerate the collapse, or you raise taxes on people, or you print money. I have a feeling they're going to do all three. Maybe not so much the first one because higher interest rates are something that the MMT Keynesian yeah. people hate. But they're definitely going to do number number two and three, right? They're, they're going to increase taxes and they're going to print money. They're probably going to do both of those in conjunction. And the left has no problems taxing more money. But yeah. that leads to a, we know this, anybody that 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 believes in, in anything on the right in economics knows that if you massively increase taxes, you're going to massively impact productivity. Yeah. Well, okay, Blue Red Lever question. Do you think that FDR championing deficit spending the way he did was what led us to being so far into debt as we are? No. Uh, no, it, it wasn't. It, it, the, the, the real problem with, with um, major debt, I think, happened more after, really after Nixon and, and the complete separation of the U.S. dollar uh, from any sort of thing even resembling the gold standard. Now, here's what FDR did do that I do think has contributed massively to debt spending is that he he put in place the first major um, welfare program in the form of Social Security. Now, the difference was that you were supposed to pay into Social Security and then you got a benefit out of it. The problem was that from the very beginning, it was set up in a way that was not economically sound. And that's the important thing to remember. This was not economically sound from the beginning, but it became even less so when you had more people in retirement, significantly more people in retirement age, and now you have fewer and fewer people in the workforce subsidizing that at the same time. So he laid the groundwork for both government subsidization and government welfare programs, which was massively expanded in the 1960s under the Great Society and a whole bunch since then. So I don't think you can blame him exclusively for starting the deficit spending cycle, but in, in 
there are certain systemic things that he did and the way that Americans thought about the economy and the role of the federal government that did alter forever as a result that I think majorly contributed to it. So I, I, I want to be intellectually honest here. I do think he bears some responsibility, but not as, uh, not as in a direct way as, as some other things. Um, question. Uh, what would happen if they secretly printed more money, secret being it's all off the books? It, it wouldn't matter. As soon as the money goes into the economy, it affects the... Th this is what happens when they print money, and this is the whole nature of inflation. A lot of people, um, politicians and whatnot, will talk about inflation as if it's nothing more than prices going up, when in reality, and, and Milton Friedman talks about inflation being a monetary phenomenon. The reason why you see prices going up across the board is not simply because overnight every single service and commodity became more expensive. The reason why you see that sort of across the board in inflation is because the Federal Reserve has printed more money. And that money has now entered the economy. And so what it is, is you have more dollars competing for the same amount of resources, right? So it's like, it's like anything else. If, if you have, if there's one apple left on earth, that's worth a lot of money. If there's, you know, 40 trillion apples there, you know, each individual apple isn't worth a much. So again, when you have a little piece of paper called the federal reserve note, that isn't backed by anything other than the full faith and credit of the United States government. And they print a bunch more out when there isn't any increased productivity, well, then now you have more dollars competing for fewer resources. And so the value of that individual dollar goes down. So even if they lied about it, like let's say they just turned on the printing machine and started engaging in you know direct counterfeit operations. When the money hits the economy, you're, you're going to have that same effect as a result. Um, here's another one. Question, uh, when will this mean from a global perspective when China become the world economic giant? I would tell Robin right now, it's not going to happen. China, China is in worse shape economically than the United States is right now. Um, when, when you look at how they've inflated their currency, when you look at how they've attempted to manipulate markets, when you look at the, the damage that central planning has done to their economy, and then you combine all of that with the fact that they have a major population problem right now, and I don't mean too many people, I mean they have 30 million more men in China than they have women. Imagine like the entire population of Canada but no women whatsoever. And so they've created this housing crisis over in China that dwarfs anything we're experiencing in the United States right now. They, they've created a social crisis in China. And the response of the Chinese government under Xi Jinping has been to crack down and become more authoritarian. Right, The only way they could potentially grow themselves out of the problems they've created within their own economy, within their monetary uh, market, within their real estate markets, the only way they could potentially do it is if they actually liberalize the economy even more. They're doing the exact opposite right now. So we're, we're about to, we're about to actually learn how bad a shape China is actually in. So back to our question about taxes, I, I would say at a minimum, I, I think the initial move that the left, if they, if they won the initial move, the left would make on taxes, they would drastically increase taxes on quote unquote, the wealthy. And there would be a ton of people finding out that they were wealthy now <laughs> under, under their system. Um, one of the first things they do is they'd pass a wealth tax. Now here's the interesting question. When France passed a wealth tax, I think it was something like 40 million millionaires took their money and left the country. And this is one of the things that's never appreciated is that they, they act like a wealth tax is just something where, Oh, well these Jeff Bezos will just have to buy one fewer yacht. And it's like, okay, possibly, the, the other problem is, is how do you actually assess a wealth tax? We, we actually did a whole episode on how difficult it is to actually implement the wealth tax. But then what it also does is it encourages people to move their money outside of the investment pool within the United States. And the reason why is because when you're taxed not on your income or on your property, but when you're also taxed on your wealth, 
you know, when when we say that, you know, Jeff Bezos is worth so many, you know, billions of dollars, that doesn't mean he has a big Scrooge McDuck vault out there full of gold that he occasionally goes swimming in, right? It means he has billions of dollars invested in thousands of entrepreneurial um, things within the, the economy, through the stock market. It means that a lot of his wealth is caught up in his own stock in Amazon. And if he were to have to actually sell off, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in stock in order to pay taxes, that would negatively impact the stock for Amazon, which would negatively impact the shareholders, which would negatively impact employees, which would negatively impact the people that use the products and services from Amazon. Like this is the part where it, it, it would be interesting to watch because they would full bore right off the bat, go through a massive wealth tax. Uh, they, they would, because to Christian's point, there's certain problems that you get into when you just print the money. And in order to borrow the money, you have to have people willing to borrow it. But treasuries have been not, you know, not doing very well. And we already know that Elizabeth Warren, AOC, all the, they want a wealth tax. They want to, quote, tax the rich more. And they hate inheritance as well. So yeah. I think they would probably end up doing some outrageous, like 90 to 100 percent inheritance tax. They yeah. basically the government would confiscate everything you earned after you died and you can't pass it on. And well, and the way the, 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 the loop here would be that they would have to raise the taxes in order to fund all of the social welfare, welfare programs that they would either want to expand on or uh, create new ones for. They would want things like a universal, uh, the, the UBI, the universal basic income. Basically everybody, they would, they would basically reduce the number of wealthy people over and over and over again until there were no more till everybody was like even. I know they, I don't think they would do that because that's impossible. It's never that's never happened really, except in like maybe certain voluntary communities. I what, mean, what, what I, would end up happening is they would they would start by targeting the one percent, right? And so what they would do is they would create they would expand welfare programs for people in the lower income. And again, look at this democratically because that's how that's how politicians win elections. They win it through votes. As long as they're taking from fewer people than they're giving to. That works out in a democratic model, right? So they're going to start with the richest 1% because nobody has any sympathy for them. And because a lot of the people that are furious with them honestly believe they've done this time over time, time and time again, when they go man on the street interviews in places like New York city, and they will ask, do you think the quote rich pay their fair share? One, nobody ever defines what the rich are. And two, they never define what fair share is, but their answer is hell no, of course not. No, they're getting over. Do you think you pay more than the rich? And absolutely. And then they actually go through and they read them the numbers. Or actually what they do first is they say, well, what do you think What do you think would be fair? Well, they should pay at least 20% in taxes. Okay, well, they're actually paying more than that. And then they go through it and they explain it. It's like, oh gosh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. It's kind of like when Elizabeth Warren called uh, uh, Elon Musk a, a freeloader. Yeah. And and Elon Musk basically said, I this year have paid more taxes than any person in the history of the world. Yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't <laughs> matter because it wasn't enough for Elizabeth Warren. And right. it never will. And that's the important understanding. It never will be because the econ the the they believe, okay, their belief is is that if we take this money from the ultra wealthy, right? And we take it in the form of inheritance tax, and I think you're right. I think they would go for a major inheritance tax because that's that you didn't earn that money, you inherited it. The problem there is that one of the, what's one of the other things they always complain about? We have a lack of generational wealth in certain areas in the United States. Well, if you're going to tax generational wealth, then they're not going to be able to build generational wealth. 
What happens when, I mean, most of these people that are very wealthy don't have all of their finances tied up in a bank account. No. It's in real estate and trusts and all these different places. So how would they go about removing or taking that wealth from them? Oh, and it's, it's to, to piggyback onto that, I mean, you've also got a lot of times people have their wealth in land yeah. and they're farmers. And yeah. so they're land rich and cash poor. And then their family um, inherits the land. But now they've got to pay taxes. And if it's like a 50% tax, they got to sell off half that land in order to pay the government the taxes. And so now your farmland is shrinking. Well, I, I, so here's what I think starts out. In order to fund the massive welfare programs that they want, the subsidies to various things that they want, right? They, they do a 1% tax, which then becomes a top 5% tax, which then becomes a top 10% tax. And most people don't realize that when we're talking about these quintiles, people are moving up and down in these quintiles in the United States. Like 75% of the people will start off their life in the bottom 20% and end it in the top 20%. Because it turns out over time, as you gain experience and you gain knowledge and you buy a house and you don't, you have more wealth. Okay. And so what ends up happening is that in order to keep the people that they've now trapped in a perpetual welfare state, in order to keep them happy, you have to continue to pour money into it. The problem is, is that you need product, you need massive amounts of economic productivity in order to subsidize these things, but you're taxing the very things that that economic productivity relies upon. See, they've got this idea in their head that, you know, the entrepreneur, okay, yeah, sure. Maybe the entrepreneur built a factory. Like you saw Elizabeth Warren come out and said that. She goes, you built a factory. Good for you. But the rest of us paid for the roads that you use to ship your products to market. The rest of us paid for the police that keep your factory safe. The rest of us paid for the, the education system that educates your workers. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean the rest of us? Everyone paid those taxes to include the person that set up the business. In fact, the wealthy pay more. In fact, the business owner is paying more taxes than the person that just happens to reside along the road. Because the person residing along the road is probably paying income tax, property tax, and sales tax. The business owner is paying all those things plus everything else associated with that business. And if it's a corporation, the corporation is paying taxes. So I, it, it's I, this idea, so it's this idea that they're they're going to pass taxes which sound very, very good to a lot of people, but will ultimately cut into overall productivity because they're convinced that, again, the lazy entrepreneur builds the business, then walks away, and it's all the laborers that actually bring the value. Here's the interesting thing. If that were true, if it was actually the people working in the company that bring all the value, if that were true, why do any of those people work for that company? Why don't they just work for themselves? Well, a lot I, of them do, but... Well, no, no, the, the reason, no, not in the scenario I'm talking about. They don't work for themselves. They work for the company. No, That's no, no, the no. A, a lot of people gain skills working, like, for example, in okay, Silicon Valley. Okay, but let me get to my point before we go off on that. Yeah, of course they do. Yes, but the point I'm talking about is that's not that's not the person they're talking about. They're not talking about the laborer that becomes the entrepreneur. They're saying that the laborer is the one that brings all the value to the company, and the entrepreneur just sits there like a fat cat collecting a paycheck and then not properly ac uh, um, um, accounting for the full value of their labor. The reality is, is that the laborer works for that company because their labor is worth more working for that company because the company provides things like, I don't know, a customer base, advertising revenue, capital improvements in order to make their labor more effective. Equipment. Like, yeah, the, the equipment. Like you are, one labor driving a forklift is significantly more productive than one labor trying to do it all by hand, right? Did the laborer bring that forklift with him into the business? No. It was a capital investment from the business owner. 
But again, if you if you just erase all of that or you don't properly factor that into the means of production, well then the end result is you can convince people we're going to tax this, we're going to tax all these lazy rich people more and we're going to give it to you. But at the same time that you're doing that, you're you're actually harming the very investment that is necessary in order to have a healthy economy that you can tax from. So I think I think what you end up with, with a scenario where the left takes over is that at a minimum, at a minimum, the vast majority of people would be paying about 50% of their income in taxes. That's not a huge jump for some people, but I, I, I want to sum this up as... But think about that. Half your pay. No, no, mm-hmm. it's terrible. Half of what you earn. And in fact, if you look at what you're paying right now between income, property, sales tax, in a, in a variety of capital gains, everything else, there's some people that are, are getting close to that number too. The only reason why they're not is because of write-offs. I, 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 I don't disagree that it's it's a do look, I'm the one that's dooming here. Um don't don't steal <laughs> don't my don't me. steal my shtick, but like I, 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 I wanna sum this up because I know that we've got some other points we want to get to. I I wanna sum up the whole economics and taxes thing together and, and just let the audience know that like if you really wanna get an idea of where we're going, you need to look back into the past. This is why I love history so much, because the funny thing about history is that it doesn't stop even when it seems like it does. Um, I mean, if you need proof of that, think about the fact that, you know, last year witnessed the first land war in Europe in generations. People didn't think that was possible until suddenly it happened, right? Like, and so the, the story of history is, is it, it just carries on and on and on. And go back and look at the past and look at, look at certain economic policies that were put in place and look at the consequences of those policies and you'll see, you'll, you'll get a pretty good picture of the future. Um, the future is not, unfortunately, does not have a very pro-free market outlook, at least in the, in the short to medium term. And unless you're prepared to, you know, accept that you're going to have to do the necessary research in order to understand where we're going. Yeah. Because we have, we've been there before the technology's changed. Right. But, but the policies we're just reverting back to some, some policies that have been tried all throughout the world, all throughout history to predictable results. And I don't just mean like, Oh, Marxism or socialism. Like we did a why minute once on inflationary monetary policy in ancient China Mm -hmm. and, and how it destroyed the Yuan dynasty in the middle ages. So like, my point is, is that there's there's plenty of stories throughout history to illustrate the direction that we're going and what the the actual result is. And I think, ironically enough, the first two points of this podcast, I think, are ultimately going to be the undoing of the left. Because when the entire economy collapses and you basically have the economic equivalent of the zombie apocalypse, like that's when your progressive utopian ideas like just shatter. Yeah. Well, unless you've done a really good job indoctrinating people, well, which brings us you to can't our indoctrinate, next point. I'll say this. You cannot indoctrinate people into believing that their declining standard of living is somehow better than it, what it was under their parents or grandparents. So, you cannot indoctrinate people right. into be, I, into accepting a worse standard of living than what they're accustomed to, to experience. Maybe I, if not, they as an but education goes a long way yeah. to... I mean, they... They've got those those minds in school from kindergarten to twelfth grade on into. So I you think know. about the Soviet Union to talk about education. They didn't have they didn't have a lot of private schools in the Soviet Union. <laughs> and guess what? Yeah. Even with the most state control that you could think of when it comes to education, literal indoctrination, everybody learns Marx. 
even the military does. They they trained a whole corps of of officers to go take over Afghanistan by teaching them Marxism. Like you want to talk about education. The, the Soviet education system is the, is the perfect example of complete state control. And yet even there, yeah. they could not indoctrinate enough people in the Soviet Union to accept the catastrophe that yeah. was the Soviet economy the, the rule, in the, the late 1980s. Is, the rule is, as you pointed out several times, you can ignore reality. You can't ignore the results of ignoring reality. And sometimes it comes and bites you in the butt. But to Tina's point... If you do, if you do have significant control over the education system, as long as long as the other institutions within popular culture, you can definitely convince people that it's something something else is to blame. You can yeah. misdiagnose all day long, if and you, you can keep a bad system going a long time, provided that you have enough enemies to point to. Yeah, and we're gonna get to that. If in a you second. can we blame got... other people. I mean, gosh, we we're able to. They're able to convince people that they're you know a cat. <laughs> That's why well, they're going to do the more identity-based Marxism well, okay. stuff, right? They're, okay, okay. they're going to use gonna, the education system gonna to, get to create this. more oppressor. Or we're going to get to this. Not oppressors. I, I got I to answer some questions here, right? Okay. Robert Anderson, question, will we see a national digital currency in the U.S.? Yes, I think you would. Like, if the left took over, you would absolutely see a national digital currency. You mean a reason. central bank digital yes, yes. CBDC? Yeah, yeah you, you absolutely would. They love that idea, and the primary reason why they love it is for compliance issues. We're already moving in that direction. Look up the FedNow system. Yeah. They 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 already want they the way this will the way this will initially be put out there is that it will just be another option. They're not going to take away your cash, and then over time, for a whole host of compliance reasons, tax cheat reasons, that'll with the claim environmental reasons. The next time we have a big banking crisis, the solution that some people who are complete idiots are going to push is we just need to have everybody bank with the Fed. That is when you get yeah. the central bank yeah. digital, and currency. then you get the digital thing, and then they just put like a nice little mark on your hand <laughs> or on your forehead, and then the and then the that's also when. <laughs> Again, speaking economically before, how do you get to the point where the government starts to take over private industry? Again, it's always through crisis. All right, another question we have here: uh, Could, in response to the dollar value dropping, states start print their own states start to print their own currency? So constitutionally, they're not permitted to. Constitutionally, the federal government has the exclusive authority um, for for currency. Now, the the way that interestingly enough, the way that, you know, currency kind of used to work was that individual banks could print off their own currency. And it, it operated that way because essentially what it was, was like an IOU. Um, that, that's not a perfect way to think of it, but it's, it's somewhat close, right? I keep my money in this particular bank. They give me a receipt for that money. I can then use that receipt um, as a way to pay other people because then they can come back and they can pull out the money, right? Um, this, this is a very rudimentary way of thinking about, you know, banking as it, as it, as it first started. Um, but I, I think that, you know, again, what's going to be interesting is when we get into the whole idea and, and we're going to have another episode at one point on, on what would what would it look like if things started to get really, really bad and you did start to see states pushing back and exploring ideas of currency is actually going to be a, a whole episode. A uh, question. I recently inherited a farm uh, that the country that the county says is worth a certain amount, you know, three hundred. $83,000. I live in Alabama where there's no inheritance tax. What about the federal inheritance tax? For $383,000 of federal inheritance tax, when it, when it touch you as it's written right now, but you know, if the left one, who knows? Okay. Do I think, I think I got all the questions. Yeah. You'd be, you'd be like one. that wealthy 1% person. <laughs> yeah. If the, if the left had their way. Okay. 
Let's go to, I think I got all the questions. I apologize if I missed one. All right. Next one we're going to go into is education. So again, we've already said with economics, you see nationalization, a lot of industry, a lot of cartelization, a lot of control through regulations. Taxes have to go up necessarily. It's going to start as taxes on the quote wealthy and the rich one or one percenters and everything else. What's going to end up happening is that you're actually going to cause people that have the ability to leave the country and pull their investments and go to more friendly investment environments to do so. They're going to leave. So you're going to have less money within the American economy, which means they're going to have to expand the tax base in order to make up for all the programs that they're going to set up that will be dependent upon a certain amount of revenue, which means the amount of taxes that you pay over time, I think would increase to a degree to where you'd probably be paying about half your half your income the, in taxes. The in number order to, where they would consider you wealthy is going to creep downward yeah. and downward and downward. So next we're going to go into education. We what don't was, need to ask ourselves that question because we're living in it. Yeah. Well, we, no, yeah, think about we, it. The we left have a, controls the education well, no, system. No, but uh, no, they control. They control it right now. The government controls the public education system. The government has a massive amount of control over the public university system. Obviously, right? right? Nobody's questioning that. But do you honestly think if AOC and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were in charge tomorrow, they'd be like, "Oh, well, we already run this." We no, would, they wouldn't. No, we would Once hit, again, look at California I, and New York, and that's that's your your answer to the to the. And by the way, I'm not trying to say let's just get through education. I, let's talk about it, but. What I'm trying to say is that the whole what happens if the left wins or takes over, however you want to phrase it, like when we're it comes to education, yeah. we're already there. But we're Let's, not all the way there. There's a lot more that can happen. Like they can take away certain types of school choice that we've actually managed to get through. Um, no more homeschooling. That I'm sure homeschooling yeah. would become illegal. I think homeschooling um, would definitely become illegal because it, it was private, illegal for private schooling for a good would portion. become. And and it's not that they would just n immediately make it illegal. What they would do is probably penalize you. Um, probably do some penalizing. Um, it, it's it's interesting how they're able to regulate people into doing what they want. Yeah. Um, but then on top of that, I think we would see fully government funded college. Yes. Yeah. Co co going to college or, or some variation of it would be seen as just an extension of elementary, middle school, high school, and then college. Yeah. They, they, they're, they're, I think they're, the goal would be to keep you in state-run education until you were probably 23, 24 years old, minimum. Which is, which is fully the indoctrinating process, just... I mean, it, it, they definitely don't have enough people indoctrinated in their view, I'm sure. And look at, I mean, the university system now is just a total joke. It was bad when I was in college. Yeah, it'll get even worse. It's 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 atrociously bad now. I, I, I would not recommend anybody, unless you're getting a medical degree or you're going to be an engineer and you're going into a field where you literally need a degree in order to do the job. Like, you have to learn how to build the bridges, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you have to learn how to do surgery. Well, but, but even, even there's then, no There is no point yeah. for a college education. Well, I say this as somebody that's working on a master's right now. <laughs> but even then, think, think about this, though. We say that because there's so many there's so many jobs out there, so many ways to be you know economically successful that do not require a college degree until they're in charge. And then it will. Yeah. And then it will. One, one of the but things that you're going to see is there, there's going to be a whole host of industries, jobs, and whatnot that currently require no degree, no certification, no licensure that all of a sudden will require it. And the number one institutions which will be arguing for greater certification, licensure requirements will be the university system because they will be the ones that will be the credentialing agencies. On top of that, I believe um, if if the left were to be taking over all of this completely, we're going to see massive segregation again. 
and it'll be for different reasons Mm -hmm. and it'll be, you know, oh, this, there's this noble reason because, you know, white people are so bad. We've got to keep them out of certain spaces so that everybody can be happy. And so we're going to see segregation again for, for different reasons. If the left, if the left wins. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I, again, just for anybody that's coming on right now, when we talk about the left, we're talking about the AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders wing. It, again, would they, they would, I think they would, they'd have to raise taxes to do it, but they would provide quote free college but the number of industries that you would need a college credential of some kind would increase exponentially at the same time that the basic courses that you would have to take that would have nothing to do with the industry that you want to work in, the number of courses that you would have to take to even get to those classes as part of your general ed would increase significantly. And that would all be around your DEI compliance, your ESG compliance. And it would all be like, no, 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 we're setting these kids up for success because we're teaching them how to navigate the entrepreneurial environment. And now the entrepreneurial environment is not primarily determined based off of how good a job do you use or do you do using scarce resources in order to provide products and services that customers want it will be how good a job or, or how good a job do you do in repeating the party line within the corporate culture that is now by government dictate through the cartel system, the one that provides you this product or service. Like this idea that anybody would go, oh gosh, I see, I see a need in the marketplace. I'm going to get up. No, 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 you can't do that because to even get into that industry, you're going to need the proper credential. And the reason why we need these credentials, Tina is because for public safety, you don't right. want, do you want a bunch of products and services that are being delivered by people that don't have the proper credentials or qualifications? You could get poisoned. You could get hurt. They, they might, you might be working for a company that's exploiting their labor because they don't have a good ESG score. And that's why the education system needs to adapt to the new, more tolerant economy that we've created through our regulatory structures And that's why these credentials will be required. So, of course, you have to provide these students an extra four to six years of of free education. And again, a full 20 to 30% of their classes will have nothing to do with building the bridge or providing the open heart surgery or, you know, building the building and nothing to do that. It will all be on the DEI ESG side of it. And, and again, they will not look at this as a mean thing or a wasteful thing. They will look at it as an entirely appropriate thing so you can properly understand the, the culture that you're going to be operating in. And, and, and so you can be nice to everybody, right? Because what happens if you misgender somebody? Well, that could have consequences. What, what happens if you make loud noises about somebody that, that suffers from anxiety, right? That's how it's going to be justified. Would the programs within these universities and even high schools and middle schools not be adapted to align with the priorities of the state? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So so they would be actively designing different studies specifically to prepare people for what the state believes to be the best thing going forward. Let's be intellectually honest. That's what public school is now. Public school is now is, is not simply... Hey, how do we, how do we train the best mathematician or how do we train the best, you know, Englishman? That's not the reason why the government invests in this is not purely because they believe freedom of inquiry and critical thinking and the scientific method are critical. It's because the state believes it has a vested interest and not only an educated populace, but the way the populace is educated. 
I, I also think that um, one aspect of the education side is that you will see parental rights that exist on the books in various states, like Virginia has that, um, where parents are uh, are have a right to direct the education and the upbringing of their children. You are going to see that go away completely. Yes. Well, you, you already and, see and this. The, and the children will now belong to the state and the 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 parents will have no way to go against what they're... Well, and, and they'll never say that state. children belong to the state. What they'll say is they're all our children. Mm-hmm. And they're already saying, like Biden tweeted this out. They're all our children. You've seen prominent members within the teachers union say the same thing. You've, you've seen them say like your parental rights stop when you drop them off at the, at the school. Right. And, and again, they, they don't mean this as a, as a mean thing. They mean this is no, no, it takes a village. And so the village has to assume more responsibility for the raising and upbringing and care and education of all children because it's all our future and we're all one big community. Funny right. because not everybody's given birth to them. Right? Not everybody's changing the diapers. Right. But this is, this is part of the, this is part of the, Kind of, I think, how they envision things. So, parent, you do the hard work, and then we're going to come in and do the indoctrination. I, I think that I, I think that if, if we made it all about that, what they would say is, no, 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 no. We fully plan to come in and assist you with that oh, yeah. through subsidy and through daycare and through very because after all, you need to get back to you need work. To get back to work. You need to get back to work. <laughs> you know, to that point, in California, they have a bill, um, Assembly Bill six six five that emancipates, uh, emancipates all children over the age of 12. What? what you, just randomly emancipates all of them? What's the reason for that? No, no, no. G- g- gives or them allows the, for it. G- g- gives them the ability to to basically be removed from, oh, from, okay. from parents. So it's not like an automatic thing. It's just more of they no, can No, but like if any, if any 12-year-old wants to, they, they, they'll, they'll be given emancipation. Well, and, and we see this too. Anybody we, over the age of because 12. Because there's another bill that, that's going to list it as child abuse if you don't properly affirm your, your child's preferred pronoun. There was a Republican member of the state legislature there that was like, you know, I love this state. I was born in this state. I fought in this state. Yeah. I got elected to the state legislature in this state. And my long, for the longest time, my, my advice was always just keep fighting, just keep fighting, just keep fighting. That is not my advice anymore. Yeah, it's changed. Get out. And he, he even said, he's like, as soon as I'm, he, he said, as soon as his term is up, because they're term limited in California, yeah. as soon as my term is up, I'm moving out of this state too. Yeah. Like we're getting to this point where conservatives and libertarians are not looking to fight anymore. They're looking for an exit. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that scares me more than, more than the left taking over the schools. Well, one more of the reasons than they'll be able over, to take over is because everybody who would have fought is going to leave. More than, I don't care. I don't care what they do in California. Let them burn the whole state to the ground. They've already done that halfway. Um, more than, than the left taking over the schools, taking over businesses, raising taxes, all those things. The thing that terrifies me more than any of those things is them blocking the exits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're basically, basically, and, when, and you see this with states that are trying to chase people around, um, you know, for for taxes on businesses that no longer even exist within that state. Yeah. Um, let, let's look at it. We got another question here. Do you think the teachers union causes a significant amount of harm to our education system? Can you talk how the teachers union may protect harmful teachers? Well, yeah, if, if you want to process, if you want to look at one of the ways that the teachers unions um, protect, you know, bad teachers is, is go look at the process for getting a teacher fired in New York City. I mean, it's just absurd. You, you, they can sit there in a room for almost like a year and a half. They, they still got to quote show up to work, but they're getting paid 
a full salary is they go through a disciplinary process. And we're talking about for some pretty significant things. Like I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with someone saying that, hey, look, I, I want a fair shake if, if a public school just decides to arbitrarily fire me. Like I understand why there certain protections might be in place, but we've gotten to a point where it's absurd. It would, it would never be sustainable within the private sector. It's only sustainable because they're using your tax dollars to do it. Not to mention the fact that, keep something in mind, the teacher's union is not there to provide the best education possible for your child. The teacher's union, a union by definition is there to protect its members. And so they constantly conflate these two issues where it's like, well, of course, teachers want the best education for your children and we protect the teachers. Therefore, we're protecting the children. No, that's not your primary function. Your primary function is to protect your union members. Yeah, They're not there for the kids. Right. And not to mention the fact that and, and even then it gets a little bit suspect at times on why teachers unions are constantly fighting for all of these increased administrative positions within the public school system, which costs more money for every position. But rather than giving teachers a small raise for which they will not see a significant increase in teacher dues, union dues, if they create more positions, they have more dues paying members. And so, no, I, I do think there's a, a major problem within that. Again, I would not have the same problem with, with teachers unions if it wasn't a government-run institution. There's a reason why the vast majority of people unionized in this country are not private sector employees. It's something like less than 9% of the private sector is unionized. But it is, I, I forget what the la latest numbers were, but it's, it's like a massive amount of the public sector is unionized. And what's, what's so problematic about that is that a private sector union is actually negotiating between its members and the business owner, right? Or the employer. What is a public sector and union negotiating with? The government. Oh, they're negotiating with the people they helped put in office. Exactly. Through oh. massive campaign donations. Wow. So if, I, if I'm a union, if I'm the SEA or, uh, SEIU and I just gave your campaign a million dollars, and now you're the one deciding whether or not I get what I want on my labor contract. How do you think you're voting? So the, the, the only reason why unions can work in a private sector model is when you actually have two competing interests, which are trying to compromise to mutual benefit. But when you have a public sector union, the union is now negotiating with the very politicians they put in power. And are those politicians spending their money? No, they're spending yours. So the same structure is not there to even make a union work well. I mean, even FDR recognized this. All right, let's move on to the next one. Military. Um, um, no, I, actually, I want to move to, I want to go to immigration first. What would immigration policy look like for the left versus what it would look like for the right? Um, now, I think obviously up front, well, not for the right, sorry, we're just going on the left today. Next episode, we'll talk about the right. I think immigration policy for the left at this point would, would practically be open borders. Oh, it would be open borders and immediate government assistance. It'd be open borders for everybody except people from Cuba and Venezuela. Oh, because they're 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 allies. They're they they do not want um Venezuelan Americans moving to the United States because they know their voting habits. Yeah. That's Ron true. De Ron DeSantis won Venezuelan Americans by a larger margin than he won Southern whites in the Florida <laughs> panhandle. Yeah. Yeah, Cubans and, and Venezuelans, especially especially Cubans, which are either like first or second generation, vote overwhelmingly conservative. And so, yeah, I think I think Christian's right. I think what was what's interesting is you would see you would see open borders, but you would see open borders, and the way they would do it is they would say they they would basically they would play the compassion card, right? It would be people that are refugees or they're fleeing or whatnot. But what they 
the, the sort of immigration you would see is people that would be coming in the United States that would almost be immediately dependent upon the welfare state. Or those who the left, even taking the economics out of it, those who the left can can point to and say, you're part of the oppressed class. Yeah. You must vote with us. Again, everything you have to understand, you need to reformulate the way that you think about the left and think about it as a self-sustaining institution whose political power comes from the ability to cobble together a coalition of the oppressed. And if they can't do that, then convince people they're oppressed in yeah. order to achieve that end goal. And which is why within the educational system, why do you think they're pushing the, 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 the trans stuff so hard? We've already talked about that before. So now think about it in the, in the immigration side of things. I think a lot of people on the right only halfway understand this. For the longest time, conservatives have been like, the left wants to you know, bring in all these illegal immigrants to give them citizenship because they think there'll be a reliable you know, vote for them. Yeah, that's, that's true, but that's only half the story. Again, they're not interested in bringing in Venezuelans. They're not interested in bringing in Cubans because those people have lived under Marxist and socialist regimes. They'll never vote for, for somebody like AOC. Right. They, they, they will ne they'll, they'll never vote for somebody like Joe Biden. And so the, the, the left's message on immigration is the same one as it is on basically convincing, you know, Zoomer teenagers that they're that they're trans or that they were born in the wrong body. It's 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 just another playbook. And this one, it's a little bit more complex because the previous one, you can convince somebody psychologically that they are something that they're not. And then immediately they become part of the oppressed category. But this one, it's, it's good old fashioned racism, right? It's pointing to somebody's ethnicity or skin color and saying, you are part of the oppressed class in the United States. And guess what? We're the champions of the oppressed. You well, have to I, support I, it. I also think that in, with the immigration issue, if the left were to take over, which is what we're talking about, I would definitely say that they will probably immediately give voting rights to immigrants before ever having any kind of citizenship. Oh yeah, no, no. Well, I, I don't- Did I, so I, Colin, did I say Zoomed teenagers? I meant to say Zoomer, obviously. <laughs> I, slip I, I of the think, tongue, that's kind of funny. I think- so here's what I think is interesting about the way they would run immigration. I think it, I think they'd give automatic amnesty to everyone that was here. Mm -hmm. I think they would they would push citizenship as as quickly as possible and, and some things. I think they would do it, and then I think it would stop. I, I think once they got to a point where they felt like they had s such massive political dominance that they're that it was basically just controlled opposition at this point, right? And we just had perpetual varying degrees of AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, right? Because that's the sort of left we're talking about here. I think it would actually come to a point where they would recognize that a constant influx of new people was actually posed a threat to the welfare system um, that they they used to sustain their their voting base. And and they, they would, don't really recognize it now. Well Again, because so I think, think it has to reach a critical mass. I, okay. I think there's a point where, um, I, I I think there's there's a point where they uh, they actually would understand because here's what would happen: they would have members of their coalition that would start to rebel against it, and and this is this is something that I want to get to at the very end here, and that's there's another thing that happens if the left becomes so dominant that I think is destructive for them. But we're going to get to that at the at the end. So in immigration, I I think they immediate amnesty right off the bat for everyone that's here. Pretty open borders policy. I think Christians right that they would be selective on where they would allow immigration from, and it would be based predominantly on whether or not they they thought it suited their particular hold on political power. 
Um, but that's what I think. That I, I think this idea that it would be just open borders forever and we believe in the free movement of people a, a, across, I do not think they would go with that policy forever. Um, I, I think they would go with it to the point where they thought it was beneficial for them politically and then it would stop. Um, let, let's go into like military and foreign policy because I think there's a lot of people that believe that if the left are in charge, we'll have fewer wars and more peace. And we and I, and I will say historically that is not the case. Oh, that is definitely not that true. Not so the before case. you guys go into all of that, um, yeah. there's a question from way up right. in the chat. Mihai Sandor asked, um, "What implications could a Republican victory have on the U.S. foreign policy regarding the Ukraine conflict, and how might this impact the future Depends war on with who Ukraine?" Wins. So I figured you could. Answer that real quick and then go into this. So it's kind of, it's a little bit off target for what we're talking yeah. about today. So I, I let me, let me just say, so keep I, it like super short. I think it's going to depend. I think it's going to depend significantly on, on who gets elected and for what reasons. I, Trump getting elected versus DeSantis getting elected versus, you know, some other, Tim Scott getting elected. Tim Scott, the policy doesn't change a whole lot. We'll, we'll probably audit it a little bit more. It'll be more or less selective in how the funding goes for it, but I don't think it changes a whole lot. Trump, the, the, it probably, <laughs> I don't even want to predict what Trump would do, but I think I think Trump would include maybe not as much funding for Ukraine, but I think you could actually see some very credible threats made against Putin himself that would force him into the negotiating table. I think DeSantis would actually probably be something similar to a Trump approach. Um, so I, I think it just it just varies widely. I'll say this: the 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 left, the left is the warmongering party now in the U.S. Although, granted, I would argue that they have been always. It was two Democrat presidents that got us into two world wars. I mean, um, I, okay. Second one was justified, but yeah. it, it, there's a difference between saying get us in, get us getting us into a war and saying it wasn't justified. Yeah. So, for example, libertarians get a ton of flack, just rightfully so, when they say like you know Pearl Harbor was provoked. That's an outrageous <laughs> statement. Uh -huh. But if you actually, because I know what they're trying to go with that, yeah. they're basically trying to say we should have just given the Japanese all the oil they wanted and traded and allowed them to conquer China. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. But. <laughs> It's two things can be true at the same time, right? You can argue on one hand, the United States's embargo of Japan prompted Pearl Harbor and that Pearl Harbor was basically we, we got attacked by the Japanese because of our, our trade actions, yeah. you know, directed against them. And you could also argue, yeah, and it was totally justified for us to embargo the Japanese because they were using that in order to commit mass genocide in yeah. China. Those two things are not separate, yeah. and that's where I break with libertarians on. But the point is, is that FDR's actions did provoke Pearl Harbor. That doesn't mean that provoking Pearl Harbor was a bad thing on us, and that we were the bad guys. We were obviously not the bad guys in World War II. Well, I, I think, but what I'm, I think World War One though is a more interesting yeah. point because it really gets to the heart. I feel like of the left's foreign policy. Wilson did not get us into here's a myth that so many people have. Wilson got us into World War One because the Germans torpedoed the Lusitania. Yeah. That is not the reason that, no. that the United States joined World War One. The United States didn't even join World War One entirely because of unrestricted submarine warfare. That was the pretext that we used. That was the pretext that Wilson used to ask for declaration of war. That yeah. was the Casas Belli. But that is not the... Wilson did not join this war because we had some merchant ships that were being torpedoed in the mid-Atlantic. He joined this war to protect democracy. Yeah. Those were his words, or yeah. at least a summarization of his words. He joined this war. He joined World War One in order to make, in order to make the world safe, make for the world safe for democracy. And the left has believed in that mission ever since. This is why 
I mean, look look at LBJ's actions in the Vietnam War. Look at um, Truman's actions in the Korean War. Look at FDR's actions in World War II. Look at Bill Clinton's actions in um, Bosnia in the 1990s. Look at, to some degree, I mean, look at Joe Biden's actions in Ukraine. Some of these you can totally justify, and you can say, well, in, in Bosnia there was genocide being committed. We should have gotten involved. In Korea, it was a, a homicidal Marxist regime that was about to steamroll South Korea. We should have gotten involved. Like, like you, you can come up with justifications of them, and some of which I think are perfectly legitimate. But the fact is, is that left-wing foreign policy in some ways has become neoconservative over the past century. And in, in Ukraine's case... The left is the one that, think about this. When Donald Trump was president, when Barack Obama was president, Ukraine was invaded. When Donald Trump was president, there was nothing going on in Ukraine. It was a frozen conflict. That's, act that's the actual technical term that academics would use. The minute that Trump leaves office, the war flared up again in a big way and it became an all out. Well, th this is the classical good old fashioned European style war. Oh yeah, yeah. L largest war in Europe in the 21st century. Um, I, I, think, I think the other thing, that's important to understand about military policy is that there, it's one thing to say your military has to be powerful and competent and capable and ready. And you have to be willing to fight and your enemies have to know you're willing to fight. Your allies have to know you're willing to fight. There's a better between that and, and looking for reasons to go to war. Um, we, we've, I, I think sometimes we look at like what happened with, for instance, you know, Nazi Germany in, in, like 36, 37, 38, when we're, when we're talking about the, the opening days where theoretically Hitler could have been stopped in his tracks and, you know, France didn't do enough or the UK didn't do enough or the United States. Didn't, I mean, say whatever you want. We, we now kind of use that as this, this knee jerk reaction justification for getting involved in everything. Oh, if we don't get involved here, then it's only going to get worse. And then it's going to get so big. And then it's going to, you know, and then, and then we're going to have to get involved when it's, you know, a world war instead of a, a small regional conflict. There may be elements where you can make that argument. The problem now in the United States is we don't even make that argument anymore in Congress. The president just does what he wants. And then we, as long as we approve the budget for the war, then we're at war without actually declaring war. And, and this is one, this is one issue where the left and right both have to take, both have to get messed up on this one because both of them have authorized to do it. It's almost like whatever president in power, their party, it's their party's war instead of the country being at war. Like if it's, if it's important enough to go to war, it's important enough to vote on it. And we just don't really do that anymore. Not, not in the traditional sense that the constitution requires. So, but I, I would say right now, I think that what you would see is kind of a realignment with respect to our military and what its priorities would be. Uh, I think you would see two things within, um, I think you'd see three things really within the military. If, if the left were to take over one, the sort of military operations and assistance that we would give would change drastically. Um, I mean, you, you can talk about our foreign, like we give, I think Egypt is, uh, Israel is like the number one recipient of U.S. Uh, foreign aid. I think Egypt is number two. That's the one thing that would change. The, the left would obviously cut aid to, to Israel. But the, well, to Israel. they the might left is, start using a scoring system the uh, on, on like their social scoring yeah, your system. ESG score. With if, if, yeah. you, if you talk to people on, on the left, and I actually do, yeah. um, I... Left-wing people in the United States today, varying degrees, this is a blanket term, right, when we say left-wing, but, but left-wing people in the United States today are, are much more in favor of, like, like multinational organizations, cooperation between countries. I, I, I'm actually trying to paint it in a somewhat positive light here because I'm not going to try to, like, totally caricature this. They're, they're much more supportive of things like the United Nations. They're much more supportive of organizations like the European Union. They're very supportive of NATO. 
I left wing people, unless they're tankies, yeah. there's there's a difference between that and in a traditional progressive in the U.S. A tanky is like an actual Marxist. Like the, the tankies are rooting for Russia because they think Putin's going to restore the Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> but progressives are are huge supporters of Ukraine because they view Ukraine as basically being emblematic of left-wing progressive values on a multinational stage. And that if you allow Russia to win, that's basically a victory for the, you know, autocratic, you know, reactionary forces of conservatism. Yeah. And Ukraine represents the West. It represents NATO. It represents the European Union. And these are all things that, that the left is actually in favor of. This is why when you actually, when you look at like polling, 20 years ago, this would have been inc incredible. If, if 20 years ago, if Russia invaded Ukraine in 2002, it would have been Republicans that would have been way more pro-Ukraine yeah. than Democrats. But it's actually the reverse today. It's it's the left that is... I, I see it all the time that like like conservatives or Republicans tend to be way more critical of Ukraine than the left does. Okay, the the but, left views Ukraine as basically a litmus but, test that if you don't support sending $60 billion or $100 billion of military aid a huge chunk of which is completely unaccounted for and we have no clue where the money went yeah. or where the weapons or equipment went. If you don't support that, then you're basically the equivalent of a modern-day fascist and you're a Putin stan and you don't believe in democracy and all this other stuff and you also support genocide and human rights abuses. Well, can I say this is this is part of the problem I have, though, is that it, it's almost become impossible to differentiate between the left in charge of the military and the right in charge of the military as far as military conflict. If Trump was president right now, conservatives would probably be more comfortable with with what we're doing in Ukraine. They just would. I, I think that's I think that's true. And I think part of the reason for that is because ever since the 1960s and really before that, you can go back to Truman as well, this idea of we sit down and we have a national conversation and then Congress votes on whether or not we go to war, that is not a thing anymore. The president wants to use force somewhere. They come up with an argument that we use. They come up with a budget for it. And then Congress authorizes the budget, not the war, so that Congress can sit back and pretend like it's fulfilled its constitutional duty. And then if the war goes well, they can say we funded it. And if it goes poorly, they can blame the president. Not to mention the fact that people then align on their feelings on the war based off of who, which party happens to be in charge of the White House. I despise that, and I blame both parties for it. I blame both parties for it, maybe in part because I got to participate in one of those wars. And and so this is this is. The Do you thing think that I'm wrong with what I said there? That like the the, the left is in some ways more pro-war and certainly more pro the, the the right. I increasingly see people on the right, and you know what? I I I myself kind of fall into this category a little bit where I see people on the right that view organizations like NATO as being, at this point, basically pushing and especially the European Union, as pushing left-wing, progressive, woke no, values. I, I, yeah, they I, all I think, are. I think the problem is, is we still have this view of the left as being associated with like the anti-war movement from Vietnam and kind of like hippie culture. But I don't and, think that's the case anymore. I don't, no, I, I don't think it's ever been the case ideologically. Oh, Nick, I'm sorry. One second. Yeah. Somebody said, hey, wait, Nick's a veteran. Can you quickly give a rundown why... Why people should listen to you about military stuff? Uh, so if, for anybody that doesn't, for, okay, so if everybody doesn't know, I did 11 years active duty. I was in the infantry. I was a paratrooper at the 82nd Airborne Division, the 25th Infantry Division. I was stationed um, with the 25th when September 11th happened. 
Um, I volunteered to go to Special Forces Selection. I ended up serving with 1st Special Forces Group. I did a couple tours over in Iraq in 2006 and again in 2008. For those of you who don't know what Army Special Forces is, it's kind of better colloquially known as Green Berets. We focus on things like unconventional warfare, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, um, special reconnaissance, et cetera, et cetera. The, the big thing to remember about Green Berets, Green Berets work by, through, and with the local population. So, for instance, early days in Afghanistan, we were working with the Northern Alliance to overthrow the Taliban, right? Later on, when the Afghan government had been established, working with the Afghan government to fight the Taliban, who are now the insurgents. In Iraq, we worked with the, the Kurds and various rebel groups in Iraq to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Once the new government was in place, we worked with the new government to go after the, the people that were insurgents. So we, we sometimes I kind of joke that... Um, Special Forces works both sides of the COIN. COIN is an acronym for counterinsurgency. We're either the insurgents or we're the counterinsurgents, depending on what the requirement is. But that that's where my my experience comes from on, on that. Um, all right, but again, I would say in the military, I, I think that the big thing that would change within the military, I said there was three things. One, I think the sort of alliances that we would make would change uh, that would also affect like their foreign aid and the foreign policy. I think the military would once again, as we all kind of see it kind of become a, a Petri dish for the left's favorite social engineering um, programs. Um, I also think that you could start to see um, the military, especially things like the Corps of Engineers used for more like domestic purposes. I think there'd be a lot more like quote peacekeeping operations. There'd be a lot of, um, I, I also think it would be interesting to see what would happen with um what sort of countries we would give military aid to in the form of providing counterinsurgency assistance. So when you start to see civil uprisings in places like Venezuela or Cuba, I think under an AOC administration, you'd actually see the U.S. military going there to provide stability and peacekeeping operations, which would essentially be used to prop up you know, regimes that are, are more left-wing. Um, uh, can I ask a question? Um, since we're in the military aspect of what if the left took over. Um, what would happen to veterans and veteran care? So I don't think you would see, so let's, let's kind of use this and put this in term with healthcare, because the biggest thing, the biggest line item that we're talking about with veterans care is usually healthcare. Uh, because I, I want to say that the VA, I think has the largest budget outside of the, the military when it comes to uh, non-discretionary spending. Um, so the amount of money that we actually use for things like the Montgomery GI Bill, uh, veterans health care and stuff like that, I actually think you would see it increase, but I think you would see it increase along with the National Health Service. I, I think that what you would see is the U.S. adopt a complete military takeover, or excuse me, a military, a complete uh, government takeover of health care. So essentially the VA, there, there would still be spending for veterans, um, but, and this is this is a big problem that I had before, the, the money that you would see spent on veterans issues would have to do with stuff like maybe counseling or maybe gender reassignment surgeries or like you would see increase in spending on things like that. But when it came to better training, better equipment, you would see a drop. So they, so essentially when it came to, you know, the, the military's core, I'm not actually convinced of that. When it, when it comes to the military's core capability, I don't know that you would see maybe over time, depending on the situation, but I don't think you would see sustainment of the U S military's training, uh, capabilities or, or equipment capabilities. I think you'd see spending and defense go into really, really weird areas that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, 
Oh, and you're going to see a lot of standards change as well. I mean, we're already seeing some standards change. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, th I think they would be they, they would be less concerned about the overall effectiveness of an individual military unit, and they would be more concerned on whether or not that military unit reflected the general cultural and values that's of the country. That's why I don't actually think that if, quote-unquote, the left got their way, that we would actually see a huge cut in military spending. I think that those days... That, that represents the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, but that doesn't actually... Like, for example, think about Spamberger. She would almost certainly never vote to actually cut funding to the Department of Defense. Oh, I disagree with you on that. I, I, I told, I'll fight you on that because yeah. I, I, I don't think that... Again, you have to... We're, we're approaching this from this idea that we're, we're dealing with a Democratic Party from 20 years ago. We're, we're not. This is the same party that champions sending more money to Ukraine, not less that wants to increase American military spending in order to fight the Russians or, or, or even fight the Chinese for that matter, not less. Mm -hmm. they, they view the United States foreign policy as an instrument to push progressive values. And I don't mean liberal Democrat. I mean, progressive I, values I think, on a global stage. I and think so, maybe that's your second or third stage of them. To, but if, if we're talking again, the, the three people that we've kind of listed is the AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing. I, I don't think you see them, you know, again, maybe the regime after them, right? but I don't see, I don't think you see those. The guys left is that. moving. Mark my words. The left is moving in a direction of supporting more Military, military spending operations. not they support more spending for anything because they think they have control over all of these institutions that includes the armed forces no you you know this how many times have you seen news articles about um uh recruitment drop-offs right or the military struggling to meet its quotas in terms of 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 new recruits part of the reason is because the the message that the military is pushing is not the the message that it had been pushing when um, say like my stepfather joined or my grandfather joined or my great-grandfather joined. It's it's not the same message. The, the the typical people that historically joined the military are less inclined to do so now. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, it is becoming more people on the left that are... that are. Think about the marketing campaigns, yeah. for crying out loud, that, that the Department well, of well, Defense espe pushes. Especially, especially when joining the military is marketed as a way to pay off your college loans or it's a way to pay for college in the first place. Or, or it's a way to, they're now pushing it like a way to fulfill your self-actualization and get your free gender reassignment surgery. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of insane how they're actually marketing the military now toward people who are mentally unstable, as if that's what we need in our military. We need, I mean, we need the strongest among us. <laughs> I just, I just think when it comes to, and, and, and to the veterans, and that'll kind of, so the military, I think you're going to, I think people are going to be interested in what the left's response is. I think there's some truth to Christian, what, what Christian's saying is that I, I think in the, in the interim, like in the immediate, I look at what's their policy now versus what's their policy 10 to 15 years from now. I think in the immediate, you don't see a, a massive amount of, um, you know, a massive amount of emphasis on making the United States military the most capable fighting force in the world. No, it's uh, on social reengineering. Yeah, basically. it's a social, re and, and then it's and then it's about influencing things to in in certain areas of the world in order to achieve certain results based off of whatever they think you know is, you know, in in, in line with their overall global objectives. And I, I don't mean global objectives is like this on, ominous thing. I just mean they look at it very much as we're all intertwined. 
And therefore, if there's a certain policy that is good here, well, then we should export it and we should support it other places. And when we have allies in those countries, I mean, look, you, you look at how the Soviet Union did this, right? They, they were very militarily active with respect and their military wasn't always conducting offensive operations. Sometimes it was sharing equipment. It was sharing, you know, um, training. Very rare post. Okay. Pre-1945, yeah. the Soviet military was very active in, I mean, yeah. look at look at Finland and the Baltic states and Poland, right? But um, post-1945, with the exception of Hungary and Czechoslovakia, and then Afghanistan at the very end, those are really the only three examples of a direct Soviet invasion of another country, like with their own military. The rest of Soviet foreign policy, the rest of Soviet military policy was proxy wars it was it was funding other you know the, the, the soviets didn't invade cuba they gave arms and support to people like castro right the, the, the soviets didn't invade any of these countries in africa where there were communist but they had guerrilla movements in, in place they would supply weapons and money and training for them but yeah, they, they didn't direct and and the same thing in many respects the same thing has happened in the united states especially post um 1945 and in some ways post cold war with the exception of afghanistan and iraq most U.S. military operations are not direct invasions of another country like 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 we did in 2002 and 2003, right? The U.S. foreign policy, like, for example, we don't have the 82nd Airborne dropping in on the Donbass right now, yeah. right? Instead, we're supplying weapons and, in some cases, training and certainly well, money. And, and look, there's something to be said for, for that the as a tactic. Like, there, there's legitimate uses of these sorts of tactics. What I think will be interesting is is the ideological shift, both within what, what they want to see within military units. They will want to see them reflect the, the overall values, and that will affect the composition of them. Um, and then I think they will also want to use them as an instrument to you know, support friendly regimes, which is not very different from what we're doing now. What will change is which regimes get get the uh, the friendly treatment. Are we going to move to healthcare? Let's let's move to healthcare. I, I we already said this once, but I, I think that AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders in charge of the country, private healthcare becomes almost non-existent. Not, almost non-existent. You get you get an eventually it depends on how long, but eventually you would get an NHS style system. Yeah, and you would get NHS style results as well. Yeah. Um. What is the next? National Health Service in the UK, you see something similar within Canada. Ba yeah. Basically, most uh, most Western nations now have some sort of major government subsidization and or control over their healthcare system. And you're going to see a huge difference in your care um, based on your age and whether or not you're able to continue to work. Um, so older people get less deference, right? You're on the list a lot longer, death panels, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, left-wing... People, though, are not going to say like, for example, actually, it's in some ways kind of a blessing that that we have so many left wing people in the chat today. I think it's because of our title, um, because to, to give, you know, the other side, it's due. Right. We don't want to just create a caricature. We, all, we I, I think we want to present the left's argument and then try to deconstruct it for people on the right to understand. And so, like, like, I mean, here's a comment. What's wrong with public health? I was just going to respond like, to that. You know, conservatives use phrases like death panel. Yeah. But but for someone on the left, that just flies over their head. It's it, it, it's it's just like when when the left accuses somebody of the right of being a racist. And yeah. it's gotten to the point where people on the right are like, I don't care if you're going to call me a racist. I don't well, care I mean, if you're going to call me a fascist. Basically Those words have no meaning anymore. Basically getting their access to health care denied based on, you know, whatever arbitrary board decides that, that this 
medical care is not worth it to them. Because here's the, here's the issue. Everywhere, everywhere where the government basically takes over the, the healthcare system, you start getting into, to, uh, euthanasia again. And it becomes something where it's like, well, have you, have you just, have you considered suicide? I, I understand. Yeah. You, you can't get a, a new wheelchair and your access is really difficult. Ha, have you considered suicide? That's literally what they're pushing well, people well, into so, now. So, okay, so let's get. And so, so the government naturally has an incentive to reduce the number of people who are on the system. And so, if your health issues are really bad, they're going to start offering you an, another way out, out of their system. So, so, so to that point, so Colin Ferris asked the question: What is wrong with public health care? Here, here's how I'll here's how I'll answer that. Um, now, I think that the left's idea behind public health care is the idea that you should never be in a situation where you, you need like life-saving care or whatnot and can't afford it, and so you just are left to die, right? That's, that's the overall sentiment or the thing that we're trying to avoid, and I think everyone agrees with that. The question really becomes, what's the best way to actually achieve that? And the problem that I have with the, with the government, because when we say public, what we mean is the government running health care. Um, to, to Tina's point, when we talk about like healthcare being a right, and we discussed this before, you cannot have a right to you, or you cannot have an inherent right to products and services that belong to another person. You can't have a right to someone else's labor. You can't have a right to somebody else's property. You, you can't just have an inherent right to it. Now you can trade for it. You can negotiate for it. Uh, they can choose to give it to you through charitable means, but you can't have a right to it. Somebody like Colin though might rebut and say, well, Sure, you can look at look at the way that they have it in France or the UK or Germany. Well, so or, the, the the problem there would be like okay, so what you're what you're actually saying is that you have the right to somebody else's labor or property, and if you have a right to their labor or property, then they have a right to your labor and property. Where exactly do you draw that line? And this is one of the differences when we talk about things like rights versus just public policy positions. If you would like to lay out the public policy position that you believe it is appropriate to require people in order to pay taxes, so the government can then use those tax dollars to run a health service. You can make that argument. I have a problem when you call it a right because I think you're blurring a very, very important philosophical line that is not arbitrary. Because now we get into the question, but let's say, hey, we pay taxes for a military. Why not pay taxes for a hospital? Okay, let's talk about that. When we, when we look at what healthcare actually is, which is a series of goods and services, right? That's what it is. The goods will be like the hospital, the hospital bed, or the MRI machine. The services are things like the open heart surgery or the scan or the analysis of something, right? So that's fine. That's, that's the difference. The question is, is, is the government good at efficiently providing goods and services based off of the use of scarce resources? I would argue that across the board, the answer to that question is generally no. So, if I believe that the answer is generally no, then I'm going to be very, very skeptical of the government taking over any particular service. Now, the usual rebuttal to this is like, oh, so the private sector has done a great job in the United States. This is where we start to conflate two things. We do not have a private We do system. not have a private sector. What we, what we, we have, have a cartel system. What we have is actually much closer to fascist economic policy when it comes to our health care. And that's the truth. And again, people get mad because when they hear fascists, they think Nazis. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when you look at the way that fascists organize economic production, they generally want the government heavily involved in either owning the industry or heavily regulating and controlling the industry in order to achieve outcomes commiserate with the state. And what we have within our healthcare system within the United States is private ownership 
but so much government regulation, mandates, and subsidization that it's incredibly difficult to operate within that system, especially because we have third-party payers through insurance. Oh my gosh, you want to talk about one of the worst ways to pay for most medical procedures, it's insurance. Insurance is a horrible way to pay for most things that you want. Horrible way to pay for it. If we ran if we ran car insurance the way we ran health insurance, then your car insurance would pay for your gas, it would pay for your windshield wiper fluid, it would pay for every time you got a tire change. Would pay. And so what, what is created in that? Well, if there's a third-party payer system and you're not actually sure of what it is that you're paying for because you just pay your insurance and the insurance pays them. It would go through the roof. It would go through the roof. When you told me this analogy first, you said if we treated car insurance the way that we treat health insurance, you would get... Yeah, you would get, quote unquote, free gas, free, you yeah. know, wiper fluid changes, free oil changes, free tire changes, and your car insurance would be uh, $2,000 a month. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That well, way, and, that's and so, not a fair trade-off. So like Matt Stone said, we had to visit the emergency room, ambulance trip, plus four hours in room, plus Benadryl for allergy tax equals $20,000. The question is, is why? Is it because, is it because having a building that you use for an emergency room, certain medical equipment and having doctors and nurses and staff in it and the ambulance, is it because all of that costs $20,000? Absolutely not. No, it does not. In fact, you're starting to see more and more genuinely private sector medical options coming up. And the number one thing standing against them is legislation. It's the government. A lot of the times it's these hospitals that come in with things called COPN, Certificate of Public Need, where they will say that, okay, fine, because we as a hospital are forced to give away products and services for free, regardless of someone's ability to pay, right? We have to provide other services to people that can pay. That would be you. You're the one paying through your health insurance and through these additional costs. So they're taking your money so they can provide care for other people. Now, when somebody else comes in and recognizes, oh gosh, wow, this is really expensive right here. We think we can do it for cheaper. Or like, it's really hard to get an MRI in this area. Yeah. Let's bring in another MRI machine. You can only have so many MRI machines within a certain mile radius. The hospital will come in and advocate against it because what they'll say is we can't afford to provide indigent care if somebody else is able to provide a good or service cheaper than we can. You have to force people to pay the expense, the, the more expensive amount in order to cover the indigent care. So what government running of the, the healthcare system has done in the United States or what government manipulation of the healthcare system has created a very bad, a very inefficient model. And then the same politicians that have made it a very bad, inefficient model are now offering themselves and government control of that system as the solution. The problem is, is the government does not have a good track record for using scarce resources in the most effective and efficient way possible. And it's for exactly the reason Tina mentioned. When we talk about death panels, it's not because we all imagine that there's government bureaucrats sitting here going, ooh, who do we kill today? It's a term that is kind of intentionally outrageous. Yeah. But what you're saying is, is that like in, in a system that's government managed, this is a question. Yeah. When, when, when the phrase death panels created correct me if I'm wrong, are, are we trying to say that in a system that's government managed, somebody that's using those government resources is going to be looked on more as a burden to a system yes. rather than an asset to humanity? The way that we normally would think about how people are creative and can bring ideas to the table and having more people is not inherent. It's the anti-Malthusian argument, right? Having more people is actually a good thing as long as they're educated and they're capable of having the freedom to, to pursue their dreams and passions because consciousness is a precious thing. 
in the sense that that it you know through individual thought you can create incredible things and when you treat people as a net benefit to the world rather than a liability as we have for so long that's when you get things like the scientific revolution you get the industrial revolution the agricultural revolution standard of living goes up inventions get made things get created but when you treat people as a burden as a net negative on say in a system where everything is state managed and people that are taking more resources away rather than providing in are again are going to be viewed as a net negative suddenly the way that we look at people becomes inherently negative now we look at them as a burden on the system yeah. and this is why care will end up being denied or rationed because just like everything else healthcare is ultimately still a commodity even in a system where the government says it's well, not so there'd be and a so lot less care and a lot more bureaucracy if there's a ton of demand but only a fixed amount of supplies there always will be because there's never an unlimited yeah. supply of anything eventually you're going to have to have government bureaucrats pick and choose who's getting care when what timetables are being set you get wait lists you, you get rationing mm -hmm. all that stuff well you yeah by necessity because now you have the government managing resources based off of political incentives and when, what people will say was well that's better than profit incentives all profit is all profit is all right is basically people voting with their dollars at least in at least in a market economy i mean yeah you can make profit by the government like stealing from somebody else and giving to you there's but but the idea the idea is the profit is not the bad thing. It's a question of how you actually earn the profit. Now within a within a market economy, people are competing to actually meet the demand as efficiently and effectively as possible in order to make a profit. That is a that is a good incentive structure. Now does that mean people can you know be bad or manipulated? Sure. But what's the alternative? Put a couple politicians in charge and then it'll be better? There are two questions. Because they're not operating off of incentives? There are two questions here that I think we really need to get to. Yeah. Um, one is, what is the stance on right versus left with healthcare? Um, she's saying she doesn't really know much about that. Like, what would the right, what yeah. what, what does the right try to go for? And, and what does the left try to go for? I mean, they both have the... They both have good intentions. We're not trying to say that the left has nefarious intentions. It's just that we don't, we don't believe that their methods play out to provide the best health care. There's that question. And then somebody else said, if you deny somebody the right to health care, why not also deny them the right to be able to call the cops or the fire department? See, this is a question. Okay, so these are two very different questions. Right. The first one is right and left position. The right tends to favor a more market-based approach when it comes to the provision of goods and services. The, the things that the the things that the right tend to place within the sphere of responsibility of the government tend to be those things which are more difficult to do within the private sector. This is why law enforcement, the court system, the military, right? The, these are things which are usually used for maintaining order and intervening when there's such a thing as involuntary human interaction. All right, this is this is a very important thing to understand. Involuntary human interaction is when somebody is imposing their will on you. And so the right typically sees the role of the government as coming in in order to protect your rights, your property, your physical person, right? We see that as, okay, that's an appropriate role for us to set up a system where we know what the rules are. We have a mechanism for enforcing the rules. We have a mechanism for deciding what the rules are. And we have a mechanism for determining whether or not the rules were enforced appropriately, right? Th those are the things that the right starts off with is, okay, these seem, like generally speaking, these seem as appropriate roles for government. When you start to expand beyond that, Typically, the right will see a role maybe for things like transportation, like, okay, building roads, because there can be, there can be issues there. Um, libertarians don't, by the way. So there, there is some disagreement there. 
the, the left, I think, primarily comes from a position of the government is there to, quote, work for the people. So what does work for the people mean? Well, it means provide things that the people want or need. It's, it's a collectivized way at arriving at various things. Now, it's not that the right doesn't believe in providing products and services. It's just that we think it's better achieved through a free market system where you have people that are voluntarily engaging in economic activity and cooperation and competition. We are very skeptical of the government taking it over because the government operates based off of political incentives and bureaucratic incentives, which oftentimes run very, very contrary to the sort of incentive structure that you get in a market economy. All right. And, and here's a perfect example. When a veteran walks into the VA, all right, they can say all day long, they see him as a customer. They don't. That person is a burden on an already overtaxed system. That same veteran can walk into a different place where they're going to pay for goods and services and they're seen as a valuable customer. You're going to be treated differently. You're just going to be. So, so the question is, if we're talking about just indigent care, if we're talking about people that we want to make sure that they get health care, okay, but we also understand they might not be able to pay for certain things. That's a very, very different question than saying, well, of course that person has a right to the goods and services or the labor of somebody else. That's a very different question from then saying, okay, well, you know, the way that we're going to help this person out is we're going to give, we're going to let the government control healthcare because then they'll be guaranteed. No, no, no. They'll be guaranteed to access the system. There's no guarantees that the system will actually be able to give them what they need because Go go look at what happened in places like Soviet Russia and beyond where, oh, yeah, no, no, you were guaranteed a job. You were guaranteed a house. You were guaranteed food. You were guaranteed clothing. You were guaranteed health care. And people risked their lives to escape it in order to make it into a country that didn't guarantee you those things. It only guaranteed you the right to pursue it. And what this should be teaching us is that there's a very, very big difference between a government agency or a politician promising you something, which, oh, by the way, they don't ultimately control. Because they can, they can pass laws all day long controlling resources. They can pass laws all day long controlling people. But what we usually see time and time again is controlled people with controlled resources don't produce the same results as free people with the ability to actually own property and utilize it to their benefit and the benefit of those around them. What's your um, take? And and I, I don't expect you to be like an expert on the topic. M maybe it's something worth investigating. But what's your take on like the um, the healthcare system in, in Singapore, where it's almost like a hybrid system where yes they they do uh, they, they do have like a publicly funded universal healthcare system, but there's, there's some caveats to that. One, there's a mandatory health savings account that people have to contribute yeah. to. It's not a, a government pool that then gets rated the same way that the social security system gets rated repeatedly. And two, there is a robust private health care um, uh, system in Singapore because they're also very pro-free market. And on the private side of things, there's very, very little regulation or, or taxes involved on the private side. In fact, the Singaporean government actually encourages the growth of its private healthcare system in order to supplement the public side. Yeah. Basically what they what they have is, or at least what they're attempting to have, is what I think many people on the left in America say they want without necessarily realizing it, where they say, we just want a system that'll take care of people who can't take care of themselves. In Singapore, they, they've attempted that. Obviously it's not perfect. Yeah. It will never be perfect. But does it operate better than what we're Does it operate better than either what we have service? or does it operate better than what they have in some of these European countries? I, I think I, from what I, from what I've read of it, um, it seems to, 
But it seems to in part because Singapore has a very, very different political system. So uh, essentially, they, they have a system where they can say, okay, this is what you have for X, Y, and Z. A, everybody will have skin in the game because everyone will be required to have health savings accounts. Um, and, and B, you get, you get medical care up to a, a point. It, it doesn't mean you get whatever you want whenever you want it. They don't, well, that's they don't, also why they have a private system. Yeah, too. They, they, don't, they don't treat it as if every single human being is entitled to anything that you could possibly get within a healthcare system. They, they, they treat indigent care like indigent care. I think what they want is in Singapore, they don't want homeless people in the streets. Yeah. They definitely don't want that. I mean, we've talked before about Singapore's, you know, the way that their, their social and political system works. They don't want that. They, they don't want people who have no, again, no ability to find care anywhere. Um, and, and, but, but they don't necessarily, I don't think that, that they buy into the whole idea that healthcare is a right. And we just, the, the, the left's narrative on, on provide everything to everybody again, because in part they, they do have a private system where the public system is, is supposed to take care of some basic needs that people have through the mandatory health savings accounts that they have for people. But it, when it comes to like specialized care, that's not government run in Singapore. Yeah. This is a reason why, for example, Robert Mugabe, when he died, he was a former dictator in Africa, very famous. He, yeah. he ruled um, uh, Zimbabwe for a very long time. Um, near the end of his life, he sought most of his care, not in his home country. He sought most of his care in Singapore. Um, you get this for a lot of world leaders, actually, especially in countries um, in Southeast Asia and in Africa, where they go to a country like Singapore to get their care. They don't go to their their own government-run systems in their countries. No. Well, and then there's some countries where your government-run system dictates whether or not you can take your child to get life-saving care in another country. And no. judges yeah. who are not in the medical field at all can dictate whether or not your child is supposed to be just allowed to die in their medical system that well, the, happened in the UK. This always, this always, and, and now again, the whole idea of this is what would healthcare look like if, if the left was in charge? And again, by the left, I don't AOC, think we would get a Singapore system if the left. No, was no, in we get it. We get AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Right. What you would get is something a lot more like the National Health Service, and, and the way the the problem that they would constantly run into is that you would have to get massive rationing. Well, you, and 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 anytime somebody complained about the, again, nothing is easier. <laughs> than the government saying you are guaranteed access to healthcare, but a, a law guaranteeing access to something does not magically create resources. Resources have to be available to actually make good on the promise. They saw this in the national health service where they said, you know what? The wait times, the wait times in the, in the British national health service in the emergency room are absolutely egregious. And now we're going to mandate by law that you can't wait more than an hour in, in the waiting room before you're seen by somebody. So you know what they did? They left people in the ambulances because that was the only way they had the ability to comply with the law. They didn't have the additional resources to meet the demand. In fact, if you want a really, really good, if you want really good insight into the national health system and some of the worst problems with it, read Theodore, Theodore Dalrymple's book, Life at the Bottom. Because he worked in the National Health Service and he worked actually also within the prison service over in, in, in the UK. And he has some very, very choice things to say about the sort of incentive structures that are created by that government-run system. The, the right. other side of this, though, is also you, you'd see massive, massive regulation on people who offered any type of care that the medical system's supposed to be doing. So, so like, for instance, Nick worked with a lot of 18 Deltas, right? And they can't they can't just offer stitches to somebody or or some kind of simple care, right, Nick? Yeah. 
And and so since they're not able to offer that kind of a thing, um, they they would be criminally punished, like criminally liable, if they were to offer to do stitches on your well. I think we're going to we're going to talk about that next week, or excuse me, we're going to talk about that on Thursday. We're talking about okay, what does the country look like if the right yeah were, were to actually you know gain the sort of dominance that we've discussed here with with what would happen if left have it. But the, the the bottom line to kind of sum all this up on what we talked about, essentially what you'd see if the left was in charge, and by the left, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. You would see a massive shift away from greater economic, you know, freedom within the marketplace to greater government control of the economic system, which would also lead to greater, greater government control of the education system, greater government control of healthcare. Um, all of these things, you you would again, from an economic standpoint, you would see various industries that were listed as strategic and therefore nationalized. You would see other ones that were considered major or important industries, which may not be totally nationalized. There might be still some degree of private ownership, but you would see more of a cartel system, something like what FDR uh, did during the uh, during the Great Depression, which, oh, by the way, didn't get us out of the Great Depression. Um, when it comes to education, again, I think you would see a massive expansion of, quote, free education into the college system. However, you would also see more jobs within the private sector requiring credentials, requiring licensing, requiring all these things. And it would always be in the name of public safety. And lo and behold, a lot of the ideological training that you get within university would work themselves into pretty much every single credentialing or licensing thing. So you're part of your general education to even get to even get to the thing that you went to college for in the first place would require a lot of the more ideologically left-wing education in order to get the final uh, degree. We didn't really get to energy policy here, but needless to say, we did briefly talk about. Yeah, it, needless to say, you'd see a, you'd see a massive shift to green energy, rolling blackouts. I I, I think what you would end up California. Seeing, I think what you would end up seeing is is a situation where um it, it would be. It would be very difficult for them to be able to maintain that, but you would see massive subsidies of, of green energy, green industry. You would also see massive regulations and I think nationalization of industries like oil and gas, which might be the only thing that would save oil and gas within a, a AOC government. Um, is that if it was run by Just the government, up. if it was no, run by the government, it would have some incentive lo- within the lo- within long the run. It wouldn't. I mean, think about how in Venezuela they started to having to import oil. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Venezuela having to import oil, which is nuts. That's just <laughs> that's nuts. Because this, it'd be like the U.S. having to import corn, right? Like, yeah, like what? Um, so I, I think that's overall that's the picture that we believe. All right, and and obviously we've had a lot of good discussion here. I appreciate everybody uh, participating in this, not just the people that agreed with us, but the people that disagreed with us. Thank you. It always makes the conversation a lot more robust. But essentially, we think a, a left a left wing America is one that would look very very different from the one that we have right now. I think there's also a lot of other things that you would see that we didn't get to. I think you're we didn't I think get to crime or the police. The Second Amendment, I think, would absolutely be gutted. I think private gun ownership would be uh, abolished for everything except maybe like hunting rifles and shotguns. Um, I, I think when it comes to things like speech codes uh, and things of that nature, I, I think you would drastically see a, a lot of curtailing. I think you would see both a combination of compelled speech and restricted speech increasing exponentially. Uh, I think you'd see a lot more government control too, with or a lot more government involvement with respect to social media. I think social media would become a public utility, um, which I, I think would be devastating long-term. Um, but again, that's that's the world we see. Now, again, we think this is we do not think this is a good idea. 
However, a lot of people on the left, when they look through this, they probably don't like our rendition or the way we're explaining it. They would probably look at it as, no, no, no. What it would mean is everybody would get to go to college. What it would mean is, yeah, you pay more in taxes, but you'd have so much more government services that you wouldn't have to be worried to paying for individually. Um, yeah, sure, of course, there'd be more control and more government involvement in the economy, but um, you know that would lead to, to greater regularity within prices and the delivery of services, which they may claim that, but I don't... <laughs> I'm sorry. No, nobody was going to left-wing socialist countries in order to get greater regularity, unless the regularity you wanted was shortage. Um, and and on healthcare, they'd probably argue, no, no, no. We're we're just moving toward a system where, no, regardless of your ability to pay, you can get the best healthcare possible. And then on energy, they're going to say, hey, look, we're 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 creating millions of jobs by converting things over to green energy. And, and oh, by the way, we're saving the planet in the long run. No more so, gas stoves. So again, this is, and it's important to understand that. There are people that can make a whole lot of, I would say, really good sounding, but not, you know, ultimately good arguments when it comes to pulling back the current and looking at how these things would be achieved. But the one thing, the one thing that is necessary, let's say, let's say you don't like my characterization of these things being bad. Let's say you like the left-wing characterization that no, 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 this is this is going to achieve greater equity. This is going to achieve greater inclusion. This is going to achieve cleaner air and cleaner water and a cleaner environment. It's going to do all those things. If, you, if, if that's your position, the one thing that you do have to come to grips with, though, is the one thing that is required for all of these things to take place is more government power. More force. More government power, more coercion, more force. Now, if the way you're justifying that is saying, oh, but it's okay because you can vote. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm sorry. Free societies are societies where people actually have greater opportunity to use their gifts, their talents, their resources in order to craft a life for themselves and in order to pursue happiness in accordance with their definition of it, not somebody else's definition of it. And if you're if you're telling me I got to trade this, I got to trade this for more government power because you hope it will achieve greater wealth and prosperity. It will achieve greater health, greater education. It will achieve uh, greater tolerance within society. Okay. But I want you to at least acknowledge, I want you to at least acknowledge you are asking me to give that up. You are asking all of us to give up greater individual liberty, greater rights, greater freedom, greater choices. You're asking us to give that up in the hope that if we give more power to politicians that we voted for, they're going to be able to run all of these aspects of our lives so much better than free people working in cooperation within the private sector. Now, maybe you believe that. Maybe you believe that. But here's my question to you. If you really believe it, then why don't you try to go achieve that without forcing other people to join? One, one of the things I've noticed is that if you want to be a socialist, if you want to be a, a you know an AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren style socialist in America, you can. Nothing's holding you back. You can get together, you can share resources with other people, you can own everything in common. You you can you can operate that way. You can operate that way but it never seems to be good enough. The demand is always, no, 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 and you need to join us in this. I don't want to join you. I'm happy for you to live that way, but I don't want to join you. I don't want to join you there. I, I'm, I'm happy for a government that does these few things, few things, and, and hopefully does it you know, fairly well. But for the rest of the stuff, I, I, I would like for the private sector to be able to figure this out. And, and in, your, in your area of the private sector, if you want to set up a commune, if you want to set up an, an, an area or a hospital system where you guys all pay in and all contribute, and then you run your hot, that's fine. You can do that. I will not interfere. In fact, 
I will try to make sure that there are fewer taxes, rules, and regulations governing the way you do that. I think you should be able to set up your own voluntary network to do what you want. Just don't force me to join you. But that never seems to be good enough. And that seems to be the underlying, the underlying principle here. The left has all these great ideas, and they always seem to require just a little bit of force and then a lot of force in order to sustain them. So thank you very much for your participation. Thank you for joining us in the chat. Once again, thank you to our member that actually gave us this idea in circle. Please, if you want to have some influence, not just about you know what's going on within the chat and all, but if you want to have influence on the sort of episodes you would like to see, the sort of questions you would like us to debate, talk about, converse with you on, please join circle. Let us know what those look like. Once again, I want to thank you for joining us. And next or next episode, this Thursday, we're going we're gonna to flip this around and we're going to say, what does America look like if the right wins? And once again, we're going to define our terms on what we mean by that. And we're going to give you some options. We're actually going to talk about three different paths of what America looks like if the right wins. All right. So once again, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you next episode.